Hey everybody and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at SkullKnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today for episode 140 are Azil. Hello. Gabolatula. Hello. And Grail. Hello. Welcome back, everybody. Let's start with a little bit of news. First, we're not going to do one on episode 373 today. Normally, that's what we would do. A new Berserk episode comes out. Let's discuss it. Let's spend an hour and a half to two hours talking about the highs and lows of the thing. Having been very familiar with how the past few episode review podcasts have gone, I just kind of drew a line in the sand and said, let's not spend an hour and a half to two hours talking about that. I think it's not the best use of our time. We, We gather together to discuss Berserk once a month. That's just what makes sense for our schedule. To me, those podcasts were starting to sound a bit like a funeral march because of the way the quality of the episode is. There's a better way to spend our time, and there's a better podcast we can make. So I would rather talk about something that we all like to talk about. It's really as simple as that. Uh, I don't think it's worth a podcast. Any thoughts? Uh, We haven't talked about this much, so what do you guys think about that? Are you cool? Are you cool with that? Absolutely. I don't think there's any use for picking any picking apart the new uh, episodes. I think that commenting on what happened in the episodes might mm-hmm. deserve some merit, but uh, I think the last one there isn't all that much that happened. So no, it really is not. They're looking for Casca, and then Sirke zooms off, and Guts is still sad in the cabin uh, as Kushin pirate apparently. Uh, Storm in. That's the episode. Yeah, I think that's all we can really say about it. I mean, I don't want to take away from people who are enjoying this thing, but I personally don't have anything positive to say about these new releases. There's not a lot to say in any case. These podcasts are about, even for this review, we'll be like, hey, in this panel, there's this, and that's a nice little detail. You gotta scrutinize it, look at the details. It's a case where it's not very useful uh, of a discussion because the point is just, well, they were on the island. Uh, now they need to go get Casca. So there needs to be something that happens in between that and, and, and this. And that's pretty much what's going on. So, yeah, I think the bottom line is just there's not a lot to say about it. This has kind of been rolling around in my head for a while is how do we do this continuation if our heart's not really in it? And you know, it, like pretty much anything in my life, uh, my heart has to be in it. I can't just completely fake it. I'm not, that's not the kind of person I am. I have to be passionate about it. And I have no passion for this thing. It's, that's it. So I think to make a good podcast for good conversation, it has to be something that's worthwhile to go really deep on. Uh, historically, Berserk has fit that very well. Uh, it needs to be something that we are experts on, or we can speak at least authoritatively about, which we can because it's Berserk. And it's something we enjoy talking about. Uh, and the continuation doesn't meet any of those criteria. Uh, all it meets is we are experts on it. And that's, if we're not having fun doing it, it's to me, it's a waste of time. There's better things we can do in our lives. Like, for example, pick up and finish the volume 29 reread, which is what is on the docket today. So, uh, anything else about the continuation before we move on? Not really. Nope. All right. The only other piece of news, I suppose, is the fact that the Fukuoka exhibition ended on May 14th, and there is no future dates announced just yet. Uh, I do think it's a little strange, given that it's summer now, 
uh, or about to be summer, rather. You'd expect them to have an exhibition during the summer, but, you know, they don't. Maybe they'll have one later. I tend to think they will, or they would have said this is the last one. Yeah. I forget. Do they have any new stuff there? Oh. New merch? Or do you mean new, like, Mira stuff? Mira stuff. No. No. I remember seeing someone saying in the chat and on Twitter that someone had seen some sketches, but no one could ever say definitively whether those were actually new or someone had overlooked them in the past, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, and also, I mean, compared to the Tokyo and um, Osaka exhibitions, uh, the the ones afterwards were a little bit uh, smaller. I mean, fairly smaller, in fact, I I would Mm -hmm. say. So it's possible that, you know, depending on the venues, they're going to be adding back a thing or removing another thing. You know, it, it, it depends on the size of the venue, mostly, I think. So, yeah, there's that to keep in mind. Uh, as far as the next uh, location for the exhibition, I mean, I do, I am pretty sure that in any case, they'll do a last one in Tokyo at the end. As they say, okay, this is going to be the last one. It's going to be in Tokyo. Um, yeah, here you go, guys. It might be this this time. It might be the case because it's been going on for about two years. Uh, we're going mm-hmm. to go back around to September. Feels like September, November. Uh, I mean, you know, that, that time slot is going to be... Uh, Probably when the next one takes place. So could be the case. Maybe not. Maybe they'll do another round. We'll see. I, I am pretty sure in any case that there'll be at least another one. Like you said, Walter, when is the last one? They will announce it. Yeah, they'll be a, a big send-off kind of thing, I would I would expect. Yeah, and these kinds of, I mean, what they call roadshow uh, exhibitions in Japan where it just goes around the country. These are fairly common and, and they can go on for like two years, three years. It's not, it's not common at all. Hmm. I just, it's like a small morsel, but I think volume 42 is due out in September. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's right. Yeah, it is. So that would make a little bit of sense, right? They like to co-market things. Sure, sure, yeah. Indeed. Good and point. September is also when this all started, back in 2021. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and get started then. So that's the last piece of news. Oh, I did want to kind of little do a plug. I never do plugs, right? <laughs> but if you guys have not checked out patreon.com slash sknet, Azil and I recently released a new mini podcast on uh, Berserk's music. And I'm mostly plugging it because of the amount of effort that went into <laughs> it. But it's a good episode. We talk about all the Berserk music. With little, you know, 15 to 20 second clips of music for context about what we're talking about. I thought it went really well. Uh, so if you did not know that we record many podcasts on top of this podcast, we do. It's over at patreon.com slash sknet. I believe the tier where you get the podcast starts at $5 a month. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's five. I'm going to have to check it out. I'm at $5 a month. There you go. It's a pretty check good it out. Deal. And yeah, and, and despite the name, like mini podcast, uh, I think that's when it's over an hour. So they're not, yeah. that, they're not that mini, you know. You're getting like, a bang for your buck. Yeah. It's, they're almost all of them are more than 30 minutes. Most of them are 45 to an hour. Yeah. Uh, on to the volume 29 reread. We're going to wrap it up today and dip in a little bit to volume 30. So I'll take the first one, which is episode 254, Ball. The aristocrats start arriving at a ball, which is being held for those who are about to depart for the front lines of war against the Kushin. We see the luxurious side of Rutanus as the rich and powerful dance and drink, but Magnifico and Roderick are on the outside looking in. Noting the appearance of Magnifico's two brothers, Giorgio and Poliziano, 
one the right hand of Federico and the other the general of the Holy See. They witness two Midlanders fighting, and Owen shows up to break up the fight, reminding them of why they're there, to hold Midland together. Despite other nations that are now planning to claw together the scraps of the inevitable aftermath of the war with the Cushion. But Midland cannot stand firm without the promise of the royal line survival, so they need Charlotte to retain a strong center. And right now they're kind of wavering in the breeze. Magnifico and Roderick agree that the future won't be among those in that room, but out on the frontier, in unexplored territories. And Magnifico reiterates his plan to wed Farnese to Roderick and announce it in public, refusing his father the chance to change the plan, which would seal Ys and Vendemian together. Likely aiding their schemes financially in some way, but we never really learn what the full plan's going to be. Anyway, Roderick interrupts Magnifico's scheming upon Farnese's arrival, because while he's going along with that plan, he has his own plans for Farnese because he finds her interesting. Lady Vandemian arrives to tease Magnifico, saying that she knows all about his plan, and notes that he's become quite like a young Federico himself. We end the episode with the arrival of Gut's group, more or less as we left them earlier, determined to crash this party, despite the obvious challenge of having not gotten an invitation. That's the episode. I always remember this episode because of just that two-page spread of the ball. It's so beautiful and detailed. It's the, it's the level of focus in that room is incredible. Uh, there's so much happening. It's one of those really busy scenes that to me is just really evocative of this portion of Berserk. Because uh, this is also, as you may remember, just casting your memory a little bit forward, this is where he starts doing those big crowd scenes with all the troops of the Holy Sea Alliance when they're fishing against the Kushan. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers that he's going to be drawing. And so I just remember this part of the series as extremely detailed level of focus uh, stuff. Yeah. This is the start of that period for, for me. This is. Yeah. Um, I also like the artwork on the wall. I'm a dork for this kind of stuff. It kind of hints at centuries of culture beyond what we normally see in Berserk. It's not much, but you see like a centurion type armor on the wall there surrounded by angels. Mm. Um, I always like to look at little glimpses of like, what does Miura envision the history of this kind of culture looking like when he's just sketching it out and kind of teasing it without really ever covering it, you know? So I always pay attention to those kind of things. Yeah. Although not a whole lot to be gleaned from the portraits on the wall. It's a, I know, what's the word? A waterfront city. So there's ships. No shit, of course. You know. <laughs> Makes sense for not a whole yeah, for Britannis. Yeah. Uh, we get introduced formally to the two brothers that were alluded to uh, a couple episodes ago, Giorgio and Poliziano. Yeah, it's, Pol- yeah. Yeah, it's, it's worth <laughs> mentioning, I think, that uh, in Japanese, their name as uh, uh, Giorgio and Politiano. Uh, mm. and, and not uh, that course used the Z for the name, but uh, yeah, it's T in, uh, in Japanese. Oh, okay. Uh, so Giorgio is the uh, joint manager of the Vandemian Bank and Federico's right-hand man and future successor of the family. So the eldest brother, I would presume. Yeah. Uh, and Poliziano is the governor general of the Holy See and a leading candidate for the next pontiff. What's interesting about those two pairings is, of course, one controls the funding, and they say multiple times in this episode and the next that the Vandemian Bank is what controls all the surrounding nations in terms of them being able to do anything. you got to go through Federico and his people first to fund it. So that's one side of it, of the manipulation scheme. 
In the other hand, you have the Holy See itself. Uh, so, you know, within a generation, both of those sides of, you know, what's what nation state control will be under one family house, which is fascinating uh, that he's able to been to, to, to have roped that in in one generation. So pretty cool. Yeah. Also scary. <laughs> if I were to be living in that uh, world. I do like the visual and the concept of Magnifico being outside of history here, looking in, you know, pl- trying to plot his own way in the world. Um, in this episode and in the previous one, I feel like he's way cooler than he has been previously and will be ever sure, uh, yeah. as in this episode in the past episode, because it's the next couples, you know, when his plan falls on its face, that's the beginning of the Magnifico. We all know and love. He doesn't uh, this know is how like some kind of world really is. Yeah. Yeah. There's also an aspect to him here, uh, if I may interrupt, is that he's mm-hmm. very, we're seeing his naked ambition and he's very ambitious. He's really, like, like I said last time, he's really, these two guys want to eat up the world, you know, they want to seize it and, and so on and so on and so forth. The difference is Roderick is actually a ship's captain. He's got some life experience. Magnifico, he's never been on a ship, presumably. And mm-hmm. so the actual getting on a ship and sailing away experience is what also reveals that he's just been a pampered boy in his rich house all his life. And actually getting out and about in the world is not, you know, it's not what he's used to. And it doesn't seem to be uh, going well with him, basically. And I think that's also what's what's funny about him. And, and I think Murad did that, uh, you know, deliberately, that meeting the reality of his dream while well, it just crumbles because he's not really made for it. He, he doesn't have the, you know, the metal for it. Mm. They're a weird pairing for friends, yeah. Roderick and, and Magnifico. It feels a little one-sided to me uh, that Magnifico's kind of glommed on to Roderick as his kind of ticket for the world. But I guess Roderick maybe just sees dollar signs, perhaps. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I you know th- what I mean? I think, I think that's it. I mean, Roderick himself, you know, says it. He's sort of in line to the throne, so he's part of the royal family of Ith, but he's not. He's one of those guys who's never going to matter. Whereas Magnifico's, uh, he's in a very rich family and he's also been left out of the, their plans for basically world domination. So both of them think, and also they've got this, this stake where Roderick, I think, really wants adventure and, and exploring and discovering new stuff. And Magnifico also wants that, but he sees more of the financial investment and the strategizing. I mean, like his mother says, he's like his father. So he sees a, there's an empire he can't touch because his father won't let him do it. So he's trying to, you know, uh, wring his arm into letting him still do something and, and take up a bigger pie that's outside of that existing empire. So I, I think, I mean, I understand the dynamic in the relationship. I just think it's funny that, again, I mean, Magnifico is not able to realize it because he's such a, I mean, I don't know what to call him. He's too close to it to see his failings. He's not that kind of person anyway. To, yeah, I mean, to he's, see. A, he's a wimp, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not, again, Roderick is an actual guy who can command a ship and he's got some fighting skills. Magnifico is a guy who was raised to be a banker. And he thought he could be more than that, and uh, apparently not. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, other than the Mag- – oh, I want to talk a little bit about something Roderick says in this episode about where he comes from. Uh, I say Ys. Yeah. But it's Eth in the Katakana. He wants us to say Eth no. with a TH. It's, it's, uh, it's an Isu. S sound. Yeah, it's Isu. So it's uh, – I, I so we are the ones originally on Skyline.net. 
who started spelling it two I's and then TH. We started doing that. Mm -hmm. I forgot. There was no specific reason, you know, back, back in the day, just a translator or somebody was like, hey, how about this? And people were like, yeah, sure. Then when we checked it out, uh, it's a name of a mystical island uh, off the coast of Brittany in France. Uh, it's kind of a, like a Atlantis myth, you know, a mystical city that disappeared in the waves because of blah, 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 whatever. So I think Mira just chose that name because of that. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I mean, to me, pretty clearly, East is supposed to be like, it's inspired by Britain, Great Britain. So uh, yeah, I think that's basically it. Mira thought, well, you know, if you look at a pseudo European, uh, nations types of power, so Britannis is obviously, you know, uh, Italy kind of, sort of stuff, you know, or maybe, you know, the, yeah. you know, southern, the border of Italy and France, if you want to put Nice and the other cities. He took all of these city-states and, you know, merged them together. And the, the Holy See is obviously also part of, part of that. Then you've got, uh, you know, Midland. So maybe that's France or Germany or whatever, all mix of both or, or whatever, Poland, whatever you want, all of this stuff. And then you've got, uh, yeah, that island nation, that's, you know, uh, a bit separate, but also got a lot of stuff going on. And to me, that, that's E. So at least it's partly inspired by that. And it also makes sense in this case uh, to use that name from a, a, a mythical island uh, off mm -hmm. of the coast of Brittany. So, yeah. So I do think it's a YS as far as the name goes. Yeah, I don't know that there's even been much, what's the word, debate about no. YS in a long time. It was I remember there being it at the time, but I feel like it's settled. And yeah, it being named after a mythical city it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. And it's also, by the way, it's also a famous uh, fantasy game series in Japan. Uh, yeah, so and in fact, looking, trying to just Google some history about what the actual myth is, often that's what you find is lore about the game series East and not yeah. the actual city so, these days. So it shows that the, I mean, it shows that the name was already known with that spelling in Japan at, mm -hmm. at the time. So, and, and, you know, knowing Mira's process, you know, I can guarantee you he was checking out uh, European legends and that kind of stuff. And he was like, yeah, yeah. okay, I'm going to use that with that name. So to me, there's really no, no contest. It's definitely YS. Uh, and it's also always pronounced anyway. It's just East. It's not East or whatever. I do think it's interesting that the um, the political composition of a, a country like East is that it is separate from the continental politics. But it's probably its own power autonomous. You know, all these other yeah. countries are relying on this, you know, a network of infrastructure between them to support themselves. Like even in this episode, they talk about the Vendemian family supports these nation states through banking. Well, East probably is independent of that. So it is introducing kind of a new kind of power here that we never really get fleshed out. I mean, this is as much flesh on the East as we have as, as in this episode. Yeah. Were they ever going to explore that? I, I think we would have gotten more. I don't think he would have introduced it otherwise. Honestly, I'm not sure at all. I'm not sure at all because, hmm. I mean, it, it's interesting to have these details within that context. And it's the same, you know, with the the other republics and, you know, Waratoria, all those stuff, you know, that describe. It, it gives us a view into a wider world. But uh, given what Mira had said about uh, the story after the island recentering on, on the core conflict, Gus and Griffiths, the good hands, that kind of stuff, I'm not sure we would have seen like much more uh, from East than that. Although, yeah, again, I mean, it makes sense to have that nation, island nation, 
it's different. So it also explains why they, we didn't hear more about them before. They are a bit, they have a, a little more autonomy from the Holy See. It also, re, you know, mirrors, uh, England's uh, status, uh, historically, uh, you know, with Protestantism and that kind of stuff. So, you know, to me, it makes sense. It's nice to, to paint that picture. Uh, would we have gotten more about it? I don't know. I, I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure at all. Uh, I don't think that was necessary. I mean, I would have taken it if we'd gotten it, but, uh, yeah, not to me, not like essential. Okay. Yeah, it's certainly not essential. I think it would have been interesting because, you know, the whole continent got rocked when the Kushans arrived. You know, the, the, the Kushan focused their efforts on Wyndham and then they were reaching outward from that like launching point. That's my understanding of how that campaign worked. So the other surviving territories were, you know, still under attack, but they weren't quite decimated in the way that Midland was. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, Midland was specifically invaded. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, it's, you know, once we learn more about Ganishka, we understand why he really came for Griffiths. Yep. So it's not like he would just wanted to conquer a country or something. So the, the way the Holy See assembled, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's again, it's explained in these episodes. They assembled to repel the aggressor, uh, and, and East contributed ships and stuff. And that's why Roderick's there, presumably. So there's some logic mm-hmm. to it. But, uh, yeah, they, they're all trying to get a piece of the pie once they, it's reclaimed. So it's, it's, uh, again, an interesting political, um, you know, tapestry being, being weaved and, and shown to us. I don't, I don't think Ganishka actually intended to like destroy the rest of the, of the Holy See. Although he was about to destroy their armies for sure. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. He was in position to do that. And I, I don't think obviously the Holy See Alliance was not even aware of the full scale of Ganishka's power. Otherwise they yeah. wouldn't be drinking right now yeah. and celebrating. Hmm. Um, anyway, the reason I'm saying all that is. It sets up East to be in a different political position than the other countries because they're in direct striking distance of the Kushan, whereas East, maybe not. You know, yeah. So that's why the only reason I say it would be interesting to see a country that did not get hurt, harmed by the Hundred Years' War in the same way as Midland and Tudor, did not get threatened by Kanishka in the same way, and possibly or probably not uh, would have fared this whole world-changing thing a little differently yeah. if they were – purely autonomous yeah I, mean, I don't think being on an island would have changed something when dragons appear i mean you know what i mean no i know i'm, I'm uh, person number one to say that human civilization probably can't sustain anything that we're seeing here i would have thought it'd be interesting to see an outsider's way of doing things yeah i'm not saying east is special just a little different no sure 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 again i mean that's also why i said you know it's fair to imagine that uh, Great Britain was uh, partly the inspiration for for that that country because of that same geographical, political, religious uh, specificity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a period of isolation. I don't know. I think like they became known for it. I don't know that it was like a substantial part of their history, oh, though. Well, I mean, I don't think Roderick is saying that is they're like specifically like cutting off any contact or whatever. It's mm-hmm. just that they're an island nation, and so they've got that islanders mentality. And I think, yeah. I mean, I can't speak for people from the United Kingdom, but uh, I'm pretty sure if you ask them, you know, those of them that are a little, uh, how to say, modern in their thinking would say, yeah, that's kind of that mentality around here. And same way there is in Japan, you know, it's like... Sure. And I mean, we saw it with Brexit and stuff. We're not going to delve into that, but yeah, there's definitely that mentality and it's always been there, I think. 
Um, we got to see a little bit of Owen here. I thought it was interesting. Owen lets loose this line about he's thinking about Raban, and Raban is supposed to be in the uh, trying to be seeking out um, Princess Charlotte in the royal. Yeah, and Wyndham, right? So it's kind of like they have parallel, but you know, working together efforts here. Like they have a plan. They want to secure the royal line and hold the Midland nobles together before that can happen, right? So it's like they're doing their best to hold things together, even though the odds are against both of them, yeah. um, or both those sides of the plan. They're trying to save the country essentially because mm-hmm. uh, they probably see very clearly that, yeah, the, all the nations of the Holy See Alliance are going to be trying to take Midland for themselves, which means their and their subjects, uh, I mean, not destruction, but at least their rule will be, will be over. So yeah, they're trying to do that while the other, I mean, the rest of, uh, Mid- Midland's lords are just bickering and fighting yeah. each other and not doing anything very useful, which Griffiths will actually comment on later on when he arrives, and that's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, I should have said so. This is the introduction of these two nobles that become kind of figureheads for the outline you mean the, Midland. You mean the reintroduction? Because we see them at the meeting uh, in the Golden Age. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. There's the tiger guy and the <laughs> squid guy. No, it's not the tiger guy. The tiger guy, we don't see him. Presumably, he's been off somewhere. But uh, yeah, these these two knuckleheads are I forgot there. about them. Yeah, the, the tiger dude is a guy, the white tiger army that gets wiped at uh, at Doldry. He's got a, mm-hmm. he's got a mustache and some sleek bike hair. He's he's pretty cool as a guy. I you know as an angry general type that that's pissed off that Griffith is going <laughs> to take up the thing with just five thousand people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, I forgot these guys. Uh, yeah, th- that beard is very distinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a shitty beard, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like a, a, it's, a, it's like a homeless person's beard. No offense. And the ruffle. Yes. You can't forget the ruffle. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the the Bosco and lookalike guy also as well. Yeah, the bald head. Well, I mean, you're you're doing a disservice to Bosco by saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of similar facial structure. Well, I mean, he's just bold. <laughs> you can't say he's yeah. bold. He's got a crag-like face, angular, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything else about this episode? I'm trying to think. What about Lady Vendimian? She has a good uh, bit towards the end there where she basically dresses down everybody in the space of five minutes. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. If not 30 yeah, like, seconds, yeah. She's on the page. This is on the episode for about five pages and yeah. Goes to town. Yeah. yeah. I, and Serpico is not spared from that. And I didn't mention that in this summary because I wanted us to talk about that. I, I love how she doesn't even remember his name, but she's able to like give him a whole psychic – like she reads him so hard. Yeah. And where even yeah. Serpico is like, damn. <laughs> I like how she presumes quite correctly that even just by proximity to Farnese, he is changed as well. You know, yeah. he is not a normal person as a result of his proximity and companionship with Farnese. Yeah, and that to have stayed by her side for 10 whole years, like, mm-hmm. it's like there's no doubt he must be warped to some extent because she, mm-hmm. she knows who Farnese was and kind of still is. So, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. I, I also noted, like, that's my, one of my biggest notes is just astute woman because she just reads straight into Magnifico. She's already aware of his plans. She's already aware his plan is going to fail. Uh, she she warns him about it. It's pretty great. And of course, the, the bit with uh, with Sir Pickle, where she also immediately guesses everything. Like she's just a hair away from guessing he's actually uh, the, the the son of a woman 
her husband cheated on her with, you know, and, and not. Oh, she's got to know. Yeah. She's got to know that. I'm not sure, but she probably wouldn't give a shit. You know, it's a kind of a courtesan or noble lady's life where she's just romping around and doing stuff because of political marriage. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as for me, I had, um, yeah, j- just a, a couple of other things. I do think, so I do think beyond all of what we just said, Magnifico's interaction with uh, his mother is quite funny. Like the way he immediately loses his cool and he's like, you didn't tell, tell father or that kind of stuff. It's pretty, <laughs> I think that's pretty funny. Uh, just the way she immediately got the upper hand on him. Um, so yeah, that was pretty great. Beyond the fact she just reads everything. I also liked, uh, the dresses. And I wanted to mention that because just mm. looking at Farnes's dress or her mother's dress, yeah, you see the kind of what a fancy dress from that era would look like. And, um, and yeah, I see, I thought that was an interesting comparison to, um, you know, Casca's dress in episode 272, um, which is, mm-hmm. let's just say, trying to be fancy, but not in the correct ways. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and beyond that, um, Dacos did a strange thing where they translate, uh, when, when uh, Roderick is, uh, wooing Farnese and asking her for a dance, he calls her my princess. In Japanese, he uses a word that's himegimi, which, uh, is what you used to refer to a noble, a daughter of a noble man or something like that, you know, high ranking, uh, young woman. But it's not quite the word princess. So, I mean, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it might give people the wrong impression. Maybe they just saw Hime and said, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but it doesn't really, doesn't really work that way. But yeah, I mean, Possibly. In any case, yeah, it's a, it's a quite a specific title, but it's not something like that's not. Well, it's not something you'd sweet talk someone with, right? Well, I mean, sure, yeah. If it's a grandmother, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's very yeah. I do think calling a, a girl a princess is a is a is a way to do it. But anyway, yeah, uh, that's not how people would refer to uh, Charlotte, for, for example. Oh, that's interesting. I had a few notes about uh, the ballroom floor, which I think plays an important part in making the ballroom look even more extravagant. Uh, if you guys remember when we went to the exhibition, uh, a lot of the time we spent was on the screen tones. And yeah. I feel like this particular uh, episode's you know, concentration on the floor I don't know. That really just stood out to me because the screen tones on the sheer white floor just make it look even more like it's been polished to the point where people's reflections can be seen in it. And I just thought that was a really great detail on Mira's part, just showing how the even the floor is pure white marble, it looks like. And and the screen tones are applied so lovingly, even though they're so hard to see in the uh, print that we have, at least for Dark Horse. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. Uh, actually, I had also, I mean, if we go into the string, screen tones, I, I thought, to me, there's a bunch of them like on clothes. I think the assistants did, uh, because I find them less, how to say, not as good as some others that, uh, Mira's done in the past, which I think he did himself. So mm-hmm. that was one of the things that I, that I noticed. For example, if you see the screen tones on, uh, uh, Magnifico's, uh, clothes jacket, uh, I think they're better applied. All the effect looks better than on, on some of the like random novels you see at the ball. So in, in this era of the, of the manga, I think if you start looking at the crowds, uh, crowd faces, that kind of stuff, you can see 
in some in some panels very clearly like the stuff Mira did and the stuff mm. stuff he let the assistants do, uh, which is granted not there's not a huge amount, but yeah, in the background sometimes you see hey you know that one looks a little, a little wonky basically, and it's like yeah, and um and it goes back to what Walter was saying earlier with the amounts of details, you know the sheer number where it's the kind of stuff you can't just do it all alone. Uh, anymore so yeah just some interesting if, stuff for people who like to really like zoom in on, on the details if you look at any other manga if you just flip through you know young animal or jump or whatever a lot of times the level of focus that mira does it would just be white for other series okay, you know they don't yeah. focus on it they focus on the yep. main characters the main action and the actual atmosphere of a room or a scene or, a, or, or details are just white uh, you know, and that, I understand why they do it. I'm not, I mean, one is obviously better than the other. I wasn't, I was going to say the other, but no, one's obviously better. He spent the time to make the place feel real. Like in this ballroom, it's all in the same level of focus. It doesn't blur. It doesn't white out. You see the whole room and it's meant to, and it does achieve like a grand effect, mm. right? Makes it feel big and spacious and airy, uh, so it's very effective. Uh, the d- choosing to do those details matters, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so the details. I mean, obviously, it went on uh, as, as as the series lasted longer, and because Mira became more, I think, had more exigence toward himself and and, and wanted to do more ambitious things. There is obviously a place for like a white background with just to focus on specific action mm-hmm. or specific moments. And, and he kept doing that. Uh, and he had been doing it a lot. But yeah, if you see, like, for example, when the Midlands novels we mentioned, the octopus guy and the other are, uh, punching each other, you see the backdrop, you see Roderick and, uh, Magnifico looking in from the outside. You see even the lighting, like they are, they are lit by the light from the room. Uh, so that kind of level of details, it's like, it's almost cinematographic, you know, in, in conception. And, uh, yeah, definitely something that's not done a lot nowadays. And actually in the artwork of Berserk interview, Mira mentions that when he was young in the, in, in the eighties, when he got his start, uh, he was looking up to guys like, uh, Tetsuo, uh, Hara and, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo. And he wanted to do who, who did, uh, Hutonoken and, uh, and Akira where people who really like did a lot of details like that and that's what he aspired to and he mentions that basically uh that's not really the trend anymore in his generation and he felt a bit like uh the last of the dinosaurs uh, essentially mm-hmm. in that regard yeah i suppose that's it for this episode uh i'll pass it over to grail next all right uh next up we have episode 255 between the rows of pillars shirky uses magic magic to trick the soldiers guarding the entrance to the hall allowing the group to get by without incident as the group enters a courtyard shirky and guts are alerted to a supernatural presence as the area is suddenly encased in a black fog Shirky observes that it's the same fog that they encountered at the cabin at the beach and warns that a hostile presence is approaching. An unknown monster approaches the guards from earlier who are quickly killed with a swipe from its deadly claws. Guts and the group hear the carnage from a short distance away and catch a glimpse of a huge cat-like animal with massive fangs as it lunges past them into the fog. 
While the group is confused by the appearance of the creature, they push on, and the, f the fog makes it easier for them to go unnoticed. Guts wonders what is about to happen now that the creature has also slipped onto the grounds with them. They reach the entrance to the hall where the ball is being held. As Shirke is about to use her magic on the guards there, Serpico reaches out to her through mind transference, or er, through thought transference, and directs them to the rear entrance. The, the group soon finds themselves in a dark chamber densely packed with columns. Serpico approaches, briefly introducing its architecture as the remains of a Kushan palace. He brandishes his sword and explains that he can't allow the group to see Farnese, and addressing Guts, says that he would grant his wish for a rematch between them. When sh while Shirke and Isidro are confused by the turn of events, Guts walks forward while drawing the Dragon Slayer, answering Serpico's challenge despite his companion's protests. As Guts shifts to a fighting stance, it's immediately clear why Serpico brought them to this colonnade chamber. The stone pillars are brought together so closely, or built together so closely, that Guts can't effectively swing. Like their previous duel in Volume 19, Serpico uses the environment to his advantage to keep Guts on his back foot. Despite the apparent limitation, Guts proceeds to swing the Dragon Slayer at full speed, destroying one of the columns while Serpico uses another to swing to safety, marking the beginning of their duel. Uh, so a few things about this episode. This is, of course, marking the, I think, the first episode that we saw the uh, this particular version of the Pishacha. Uh, gotta catch them all. This is the yeah. tiger version. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as uh, and as some readers may recognize, the appearance of the colonnade cham chamber in this one is based on the architecture of the great mosque cathedral of Cordoba in Andalusia, Spain. Um, for me, I, of course, this is this is a, a really exciting uh, start to a great fight. Uh, one thing that stood out to me when reading this again was just how I think Mira used this opportunity to highlight. A little bit more how Shirke and Isidro are still, you know, pretty young and, and Serpico and Guts definitely kind of portray the more experienced warriors of the group. Uh, Shirke really got, got fooled bad by Serpico's little use of the, th of the thought transference here, where it's like they're, they're kind of their group tool. And I think she, she didn't, she didn't question it and, and everybody went with it. And, uh, I just thought that was a sweet moment for her, how she was kind of, uh, dismayed finding out that he'd tricked her basically. Mm. And, uh, it's a, it's a great character development moment, uh, especially with her reaction in the following episodes. Uh, Isidro, on the other hand, I feel like is, um, kind of trying to convince himself that they're, they're not really going to kill each other. They're not going to go all the way. <laughs> they're really just, <laughs> this is just, a, this is, they're not going to go try to kill each other. Uh, and so I love that they, those two younger characters are having very age appropriate reactions to this very tense and, and difficult situation. So I'm wondering what you guys thought. What I find interesting. So yeah, I agree with you for the development of uh, Shiruke and, uh, and Isidro. And I'll also talk about that in my own episode later on. Oh. And uh, <laughs> I do like that Gats seems to know what's going on right from the start. Like when she says, oh, Serpico's calling us to the back door. And he's like, he's got these dots where, yeah. you know, to say, mm-hmm. And so he's not, like, he's not surprised. He's not flustered. I mean, of course, it's God's, you know, he's got to be badass. But <laughs> yeah, he, 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 he seems to know what's up. Like, he can guess. And like you said, it really shows a difference 
between a kid's understanding and, and point of view in the world and an adult's who's actually been, you know, in battle and has killed people. And I felt for Isidro especially, it's a big moment of development uh, in the continuation of what we saw with the uh, the pirates on, on the pier, where he's like, okay, I've been fighting monsters and stuff like that, and that's all well and good, but actually killing humans, fighting humans, fighting with your comrades and people you know, I mean, that's a whole other fucking level here. Mm-hmm. That's so very, very interesting, beyond the duel itself, very interesting to me. Hmm. I thought the, uh, the, I try to find details that I did not uh, realize before whenever I do these. And the one that struck me in this episode and a couple in the future is that he keeps the uh, hair on his finger through this fight, uh, which allows, you know, him to project thoughts and maybe to have stray thoughts uh, conveyed as well. Because later at the, at the end of this fight, you're, there's a thought that... You're going ahead. You're so happy to saying, say something uh, you just found out. You're going ahead of the, of the episodes. <laughs> okay, then all I'll say is the hair comes back. It's not a random yeah. little thing that they do. It, it comes back. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. It is cool. You can... I mean, I'm just... Again, I'm just teasing you. You can, you can say it now. It doesn't matter. That's fine. I'll wait. I didn't have much more to say other than that part. Um... Serpico and Guts duel, of course, is, you know, long, not wanted is the wrong word, uh, long hinted at, you know, I, the, yeah. the scene that I think of is volume 24, the beginning of 24 and 23. Yeah. When, you know, Serpico flicks a nut at Guts, you know, and Guts catches it. Is it a nut? I think it's a yeah, nut. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an acorn, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like the, you know, has the open eye thing. Uh, yeah, he has not forgotten about the rivalry. The rivalry has subsided. Yeah, I think what's weird about this duel is that his our last time we saw Serpico, there was nothing amiss with the group, and it wasn't like he was angry at them or anything. He was actually kind of sad about the decision to, mm. to leave. So that he's suddenly aggressive comes off as very strange, and then it's later that you get his motivations spelled out pretty clearly. I kind of feel like that's a weird thing to do. Like, I, I would rather his motivations be known as the blades start to swing, you know? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I agree. Um, yeah, they do have this little exchange in, like you said, in 23, uh, being a 24, where Guts throws him a stick and he plays and stuff. Then on the, um, on the beach, after the fight, after the Macar's dead and all, uh, Serpico has his, this shot where he sees the beast, he sees Farnese, he remembers, you know, he was the one who stood in front of, you know, in, in between Guts and the mm-hmm. others. And he's got this very cold as fuck look. And it's like, and you can tell he's not going to forget that moment. Then, sure. then, um, you know, when they, you know, decide, when he announces to the group in the, in the little rooms they've rented that uh, they're not coming back, Gus tells him, well, what about a rematch? That's again a call to that that possible thing. So yeah, I, I do think it's uh how to say foreshadowed enough or you can guess. But yeah, I mean to your point, he doesn't, you know, outright say I won't let you uh endanger Farnese or anything. But at the same time, I feel it kind of fits his character. He's not a very like he's not a very outward type of guy who spills mm-hmm. out his guts and, uh, and you know that kind of stuff. So I also feel like him being like, no, it's not going to be possible. And at the same time, it's also it also works as a a test of Guts' own self control, which we you know get into that in my episode as well. So I don't know, overall, um, I don't have that complaint. Okay, I would really just want a, a line that says I I won't let you intervene with Farnese again or something like that, and that that'd be it. And of course, he does that. 
Uh, and he explains why uh, in the following episodes. So just the placement of it just seems a little strange. Now, I agree. The background is there. The context is there if you if you dig deep enough. Uh, just, you know, I felt like it would be like a good sparking moment to begin the duel. Mm. That's all. It just felt a little missing to me. Uh, might also I, be... Also, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, might also be that if you announce it in advance, it kind of diffuses the tension because it's like, okay, mm. so... It's not like, you know, they're not, it's like Isidro. Oh, you're not going to really kill each other, which they don't, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think the idea is more of, I don't know, it might be more mysterious and tense that way. I do remember pretty clearly, this is a 2005 when this episode came out. Um, the discussion at the time was, and I, I was probably guilty of this as well, was like, well, Serpico's dead now. Uh, because it's like, <laughs> it's like, because where do you go from here? You know, if you, if you bother to, to play the duel card, you don't both walk away and dust your shoulders off and go, well, that was fun. You know, you, you'd expect a long awaited duel to have a consequence. And that's where my head was at when this, this episode is, first This came is incredible out. because you just brought my point by going back into the past and remembering how it went. So, exactly. I mean, just to. Just to, I, my gosh, I just wish he'd reiterate. That's all. Like a little. I know, but and this is why we will fight. Yeah, moment, but you know? I mean, like you said, I mean, I don't know. Like you said, I think this really, it's it's funny. I, I'm just, you know, all humorous and stuff here, but I really do think this proves the point that not saying it outright makes the real think, okay, now Serpico's going to croak for real. It's going to get cut in half, <laughs> which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is, which is the point because, you know, if it's something where, yeah, obviously he's not going to die. Then okay, what's the point? Let's get it. Let's get it over with. And also, it's like if he had gone through with it. And this is the joke we've made in the past. Azil is like if he actually had just claw smash Serpico in half, and now there's two Serpicos on the ground, <laughs> and the kids are just like staring at the pool of blood, and Guts is like, "Well, let's go. Let's you go. Know. Let's go talk to Farnese. <laughs> How's that next moment work exactly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's no like, there's no. Farnese would not forgive him for that. <laughs> I mean, oh, at Wait, least Serpico, I haven't found him yet. He must have run off to the bathroom. Oh, or the something. monsters got to him, right, kids? Yeah. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> a monster got to him, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I was about to say, at least I hope Farnese would not forgive him for that because he's just like, well, he kind of deserved it. Uh, he shouldn't have stopped you. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that would be bad. The other thing that's cool about this episode is one we didn't really focus on for obvious reasons. The main event here is Serpico and Guts is the the appearance of the Pisasha is the is the what's the word smoking gun for what's to happen. You know, this is it. This is the actual infiltration that will lead to the full on war that will happen here in Britannus. So yeah. it's right right here. It begins right here on these pages. The next two volumes worth of content, basically. Yeah, the fog. The fog is coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I quite like, yeah, I'm a big fan of the, the whole Fox thing. Really, really love it. So, yeah, it's great. The Pichasha's great. And using, you know, using Crocs was great. Uh, using Tigers. I mean, fucking awesome. Tiger is already, like, ultra fearsome by itself. But uh, Ganishka version, yeah, what can you do? So, yeah, great stuff. Uh, and the Colonnade Chamber itself. Is obviously Miura is very familiar with the Dreamcast game. You know, got swinging his sword, <laughs> unable to swing it, it clangs against the wall. That's like the whole thing in that game. And he, he now he made a whole action sequence around it. Well, how will Guts get through this? I mean, yeah, Guts Guts does go through pillars, even in like uh, the Black Salesman arc. So I think mm-hmm. I think that idea 
because if you remember, of course, these are much ma more massive pillars and, and too big for actually for the Dragon Slayer to go through. But when he fights the Count, they're also in some kind of giant hole with these giant columns. But mm -hmm. yeah, this one's what's interesting is, uh, yeah, they, they are very close. Like it's really rows and rows and rows of, uh, of columns, uh, very close to each other. And some things they say in the Japanese, but Dark Horse only translated it as reinforced pillars. Uh, is that these have iron in their core. They're like iron cord supported pillars. So it's not even just like rock or something that's decorative, but they're supposed to be extra hard to go through. Hmm. Uh, even though they are not that thick. So it's really like the worst possible environment for Guts and the Dragon Slayer, which, yeah, which, really. which is interesting. It's cool that, it's cool that uh, there's, this, there's this moment where Serpico lays it out, draws his sword, uh, and Gus just without hesitation says fine and draws his sword. You know, there's no witty repartee between them. It's just let's do this. Let's throw down. You know, Gus is ready for it. But he has a cool, and I don't mean cool like cool guy. I mean a cold look on his face uh, throughout this scene as well. Yeah, oh, it's iconic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, think they use this image in the character introductions for a while in the volumes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I think the shot of him with the dragon slayer, slayer as he pulls it to his side, well, that was like the the centerpiece for one of those big posters, wasn't it? For young animal, uh, you know the one where it's like oh yeah, yeah, shows yeah. All this the, one, oh yeah, okay, I know the one you mean. It's like yeah. a broken, yes, yes, yes. broken piece of glass kind of effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the ones they used for. They did some things. They called it uh, Hakusen Shashimbun, uh, like mm. the Hakusen Sha newspaper, basically. That they gave out in uh, Tokyo streets. I have like yep. ten of them at my house, piled up in folders and stuff like that. And that was for the release of Volume Thirty Nine, I think. Okay. Uh, but yeah, That's a cool one. Yeah, yeah. They used it, and yeah, it's a very cool uh, scene. It actually, makes me want to check whether you see more of the Dragon Slayer. Yeah, like I know, right? I thought the same thing. Damn. Because it's cropped here. It looks yeah, cropped. Yeah, yeah. Now I want to check it out. Um, anyway, uh, you probably do. Damn, I want to check. I, I I have pictures of it on my computer too somewhere, but I don't know where. Anyway, yeah, I I think the what's cool is that God's. I mean, again, it's he's a man. He was a mercenary. He's fought people. I mean, he's done duels with Griffiths, high stake duels before. Uh, it makes sense. There's no like witty lines and stuff like that mm -hmm. because it's a serious moment. It's not for for joking around, so they just they just get right into it, you know. So yeah, it it makes sense to me, and I do like very much like Isidro's look before Gus draws was like <laughs> obviously they're not gonna go through with it, and <laughs> they actually do, and it's it's such a you know again so great for these characters because I see a lot of uh, maybe not a lot of but I've seen plenty of fans who are like have expectations of Isidro and Shiroke where they should, they want them to become adults and be badass and stuff like that. And my point is always the same. Isidro is not meant to be a badass character. You've already got Guts. Guts is a badass character. You've already got Serpico who is not as strong, but he's like the cold technician, super smart guy, you know, who gets efficient, gets things done. So each character has his roles. And the reason there's these younger characters is because they add different things. Yeah, different perspectives yeah. as well. I mean, it's the same kind of complaint people say, well, if Carcass isn't cool, why is he on screen so much? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. if he's not the coolest guy, why is he, why are we even bothering with this non cool person? Yeah, like, or, a different perspective. Yeah, or even the fact he's like a hater, basically. Yeah, he, mm -hmm. the point is that Guts has a hater. 
it's not just everybody loves him, he's great, and everybody loves everybody. No, because in the re- in real life, that's like that. Even in your team, there's going to be a guy who doesn't like you for no good reason. Uh, you know, Casca, you know, gets in his face because he does things that are not, maybe he's not enough of a team player. But then there's Carcass who just hates him because he hates him. And that's a real thing in real life. And Carcass, despite that, he's still endearing because that's how it is. So yeah, same for these characters, and uh, yeah, I, I really like th- these developments. And beyond all of that, uh, I guess I, if you're done, Walter. Yeah, I think the Serp- Serpico, the the what happens between Serpico and Guts, uh, even by the end of this fight, I think it's interesting to see Asidro's reaction. There's a little moment there. I don't yeah. want to step on your toes. I'm just saying it builds as we go. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. All. Well, we'll we'll get to it. Uh, I think we'll have time to discuss that uh, later on, as you said. And I guess I, I only have two other things to mention. First, that the the level of artwork here is really crazy. I mean, you mentioned the ball warrior because there's a lot of characters and stuff. But if you look at, for example, where Guts is slashing the pillars, I mean, you, you look at how the pillars are drawn with all this cross-hatching, then you look at, uh, you know, smashing them and like the effect, you know, the rubble, the weight breaks and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You can just flip a page on it and not care, but it's actually like it's a lot of work. It, the 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 propulsive rocks. That's what's cool to me. Like they're they're yeah. propelled forward. You know. Yeah, it's what gives it cool. like the, the yeah the dynamism. And same thing when you see Guts walking towards Epico uh, with the rose and the black background earlier on. Great scene. Uh, He's Yamo when he's lifting the Dragon Slayer with the cape. Great stuff. So visually, like uh, graphically, a lot of work. And before that, at the beginning of the episode, there's something that amused me. Uh, I, f- I forgot what Dark Horse translated it to. Probably something not great. But when there's, when uh, Shuriken mentions the, uh, the fog rolling in and the fact that the Pishasha coming, Puck's got a, a little panel where he's got this uh, <laughs> crocodile mask on top and he he uses a pun he says warning and it's basically it's a pun on warning in in english like warnings as danger and wani which means crocodile in japanese and it's oh my god yeah and it's just okay so for here they say crikey as if it's steve Irwin. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well yeah but it doesn't make any sense there's no context for it Oh, he's talking about the attack at the beach. Yeah, that's why yeah, he's doing a crop. Yeah, it's okay. because of that. It's because he's, uh, they are remembering the attack at the beach where they're crocodiles. And so he's mm-hmm. doing the warning because it's uh, like, attention, there might be uh, crocodiles again. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, it works great in Japanese. It's simple. It, you understand it immediately in Japanese. Uh, yeah, in English, it's not really translatable. So, uh, yeah, crikey. I mean, I, I guess people would get it. Problem is... Like, would a current reader understand the Steve Irwin connection? Maybe not. I don't. I don't know. It's kind of a dated reference at this point. I think he died like two decades ago or something. Oh, jeez. Well, already been twenty years. Well, it feels like it. I think live it, on forever. Yeah, <laughs> at least well, I hope so. Yeah, and Puck. <laughs> there is a good pun though. Uh, when Puck is Doraemon uh, talking about uh, Sidro in the Dark Horse says. That's too big for an alley cat. And then there's uh, Doraemon as Puck. And it says alloy cat because Doraemon is a robot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Alloy cat. Yeah, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, whereas in Japanese, to say a stray cat, uh, you say Doraneko. That means stray cat. So Doraneko, mm. he says Dora for Doraemon. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm, easy, mm-hmm. easy joke. Uh, Aloe cat. Uh, that's not bad. Not bad not at bad. all. Yeah. You kind of have to know what Doraemon is to get it. Yeah. Though, well, yeah, I mean, uh, sure. yeah, but I mean, if you, is, is that's a joke. Like Mira makes a joke about Doraemon. If you don't know the character, you can't, yeah. Sure. Can't understand. I will say, uh, I bought some, uh, Furikake, which is a, you know, seasoning for yeah. rice and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a Doraemon brand, Furikake. So he's out yes. there. People know about Doraemon. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in Japan, yeah, for sure. It's, it's still huge. Mm hmm. Okay, that's it, I guess. All right. I gotta go I gotta go grab my volume thirty, so whoever wants to take it, I'm gonna go grab my volume thirty. Please proceed. I have a good grab. All right. <laughs> my friends, it's time to duel. Very nice. Sorry, I meant to say duel. Let's fucking go. Oh wait, before that, Walter forgot, but she likes to talk about the cover for an hour and a half. Uh, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, you know, oh. using the opportunity that he's not there to, to bitch. Uh, <laughs> so we probably should wait for him to talk out the cover, poster inserts and the stuff. But since it's your turn, Gobs, how about you, you do that? You start by speaking about the cover. What do you like about it? What do you don't like about it? Of uh, uh, 29? Uh, 30. 30. Oh, oh, oh. Well, it's a, I, I love the, the monster up front. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's like, look at that panicked eye as, as guts is slashing into it and the blood is dripping down and kind of pooling up in the corner like it's a tear. <laughs> it's, it's really awesome. And it's, uh, not an image that I would think that he would choose for a cover. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's like, okay. Look at this awesome dude fighting a monster, kicking ass. I think that um, any opportunity to to show how awesome Guts is on a cover is used, and this is no exception. I like that it's not just a random monster; it's relevant to the contents of the of the volume yeah. as well. Though yeah, we haven't Makara, yeah. technically met it yet. Yeah, it's the Makara. So right, I I, I just uh, it's like a typical bread and butter berserk. Uh, illustration in the sense that Guts is fighting a big monster with his big sword and so <laughs> so it's it's typical in that way but it is nice that it's uh, plot relevant in this mm. case yeah mm. to me it feels very like a pulp you know pulp action yeah you know seeing illustration mm. and I think that's on purpose I think that's what Mira was going for uh, but yeah and what I would say is the most interesting about seeing to me is the the angle yeah. Mira like to sometimes to try to do challenging angles and the fact we see guts from like the bottom up like that we see even we get an interesting uh view of like his armpit uh from you know where the Sexy. armor doesn't cover it which is <laughs> yeah sorry I didn't hear guts oh nothing I didn't say anything <laughs> okay so yeah it's just uh i don't know i i find that funny it's not it's not my favorite cover by any means i think it's one of the lesser ones but uh yeah it's lower stack yeah but it, but it's interesting yeah you should thank me walter i was uh gobs was starting on the on his episode i was like oh, 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 oh we gotta wait for walter because we gotta talk about the cover the posters <laughs> and everything I did not do the typical thing. It's because we usually start the episodes I with know, a new volume. I was so I there as your best friend. I was yeah. there, and I was like, "Thank you." Hold up, 
we're gonna we're gonna wait for Walter. I also bitched a bit, but um, since, okay. since you weren't there, we'll keep the bitching in there. Damn, um, <laughs> it's not a it's not a very good cover. Uh, by me, by me, your standards. It's not a great cover. It's not one of the best. Uh, I think the pose is strange. Um, I tell you, I just it's not, it's, it feels kind of flat to me, despite the dimensionality of the angle. It just feels flat. It looks flat. You know what I mean? Like it's not uh, hitting me. Uh, so, oh well, whatever. It's, it's the Makara cover, you know. Mm, I, like uh, I feel like here's the thing: if we're gonna show guts killing a Makara, that's the stu- that's the, the topic of the picture, right? Yeah, it's got to be better. It's got to be better approaches than this. You know what I mean? Like something a little more dramatic. But this is this is like zoomed in to the eye, guts doing some real brain damage to this Makara, right? That's what the effect is. It's just not. I don't know. The pose, it's not really working for me. I think the the eye, like what I like most about it is the eye. And yeah. I think probably if I tried to like uh, retro-engineer, but you know, uh, the, the way it was done, I, I think I was like, what would it look like to have this cool shot from like an angle where we, you see like the giant mouth, the eye, and then guts on top. And yeah, after after that, I mean, the pose, yeah, sure. I mean, it's also, it's awkward because the way guts has to fight these is pretty... Awkward to begin with. Um, yeah. But yeah, I do like the angle. One question I have for you, I think we might have talked about it again, is how much input do you think the editor has in these covers? In like choosing mm. what restriction goes on, on the cover? Uh, do you think they, well, they, they choose think among a bunch? Or? This one is, what's the word? And this is a scene that happens in this volume, right? Yeah. So, I mean... Mira clearly created this cover in the midst of the time that he was doing the episodes. Yeah. So when they ask him, which one do you want? Clearly it was one of the ones he handed them. So my, my point is it's not a stock picture of guts. Yeah. yeah it's one sure. of this moment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, it was done on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a- yeah. Yeah. That's so if, if, if somebody else does make the ultimate call, obviously Mira as the artist has input on which one it is. Cause he hands them a stack of them. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. I think my, my, my question is more of like, you know, it's something we've commented on before, but basically it's 99% of the cases it's got to be Guts doing an action Oh, thing. oh, oh. That's what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more of like, because yeah. one would say, well, maybe the the Dakar riding the, the Tigers would have been a better illustration, like more fun. Not, it's not necessarily, but it's different. It's fun, and in at least in my opinion, it's a better illustration. I like it a lot. I, I mean, I love those Dakar riding the tiger. The idea itself is so, I mean, I, I want to say silly, but, you know, silly, but at the same time, badass. And they look mm-hmm. fucking monstrous, so it's great. Uh, just love that one. And you could say, or you could even say, well, why not put Serbigo? It's his, it's his moment. It's marketing is the answer. You know, they have to market. This is the one about, this is the series with Guts, the guy with the big sword. Yeah. Yeah. That's why this is on the cover, you know. Mm. It's a bummer, though. I agree with you. Yeah, it's all about recognition on the shelf, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what, Grail? I think that's exactly what Mira mentioned in one of his interviews. I cannot remember which one, but he was talking about, you know, the way manga is done. And it's like, basically, well, you got to have something on the cover that somebody will instantly recognize. Because otherwise, yep. you know, it doesn't sell. It's a brutal business. I yeah. mean, there's so many series that do not find success while they should, and it's just, there's nothing to do about it. I mean, I just, I don't, 
I, I understand the logic for it. I just don't agree with it because I think people seek out titles and, you know, the cover should be good and the title should be known to them before they purchase in, in general, particularly if you're going to buy volume 30 of anything, you'd better know what Berserk is. Why would you jump into 30? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I understand what you say and I agree with it. And if you remember, especially for Gigantomachia, the, yeah. uh, the one of Prome on top of the dead uh, Titan is is like, that's a fucking incredible illustration. Uh, really mm-hmm. great. I love it. Absolutely. But Delos is not in it. And so that's not the one that was chosen for the cover. And it is so obviously in every way a better illustration and should have absolutely been the cover and yet was not. And to me, that's the ultimate example of yeah. uh, a bad decision. But I also like the power of marketing. And I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but like people have got the numbers, you know, they've got the statistics, they know what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes, you know, it might, can be counterintuitive, but they're like, well, this sells and this doesn't sell. So it's kind of like... Ugh, uh, it's gross. Yeah, I, I mean, I know. But, you know, it's like it's the same thing with for, uh, clickbait uh, articles. It is better to have an informative title that reflects what's the content of some article or whatever. But if you say five things that uh, get uh, sexy women to blah, 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 then you're going <laughs> to get like 5,000% more clicks. And, and I do need to know how to do things with sexy women. So I do need to read <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you, you, know, you know what I mean? All you put is like something about, I don't know, remote uh, remote uh, walking uh, slash uh, back to office hybrid uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. And you put some hot chick with like visible cleavage. We got 680% more uh, <laughs> engagement or mm-hmm. something. It's, it's, yeah, marketing stuff. And you can be like, well, that's, that's kind of gross. That's kind of pathetic even that we need to. Well, it's, what's gross about it is that it is, it is grossly accurate. It's like, yeah, it's gross. We know it's human nature. That's, yeah. that's why we know this works. You know, it's like, ugh, I don't want to know these things about <laughs> who we are as a species. Yeah. It's kind of like the sausage factory, you know, and it's the same way that, uh, Mira's like, uh, you know, violence and sex. You look at entertainment, like the core of it is always going to be violence and sex or eroticism, if you want. And it's like, you know, yeah, pretty much, basically. I mean, there's humor or stuff, but for action series and the like. Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's a roundabout way to say. I think that's also why, like, mechanically or statistically, you've got to end up with sometimes covers that are not as good because you can't always be just guts like looking at the the screen or being moody or something. You've got to have action shots and yeah, some of them are good and some of them are not as good. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about the posters real quick. Did you already talk about the posters? Did I miss no, that? No, we waited for you. Okay. I do like the one with Serpico. I think it's very cool and moody. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wish he had something to do here. That's my only real criticism of it. But it's a character piece, right? It's a yeah. mood thing. Mm. He's in the night, crescent moon, uh, looking wary over his shoulder in his what he's been wearing in this Vandemian sequence mm. of episodes. So it's it's very cool. I like you know what I like most about it uh, now that I'm looking at it is the that it's the style of the the brushwork. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like pencil and watercolor over yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it, that's cool. It's what uh, yeah, it's what he well he to, he does talk about it in the talk of uh, Bazek um, interviews. Yeah. Uh, 
light, uh, I think he calls it light painting. In, I mean, in Japanese, but yeah, it means watercolor. And his watercolor pencil means that kind of that style. And he says for four character pieces, it's great. So that's why he used it a lot for the trading card games and all those. Uh, those are beautiful. Yeah. A lot of those are beautiful. So yeah, fitting style. I don't have much more to say because there's not like a subject to this other than Serpico being, you know, kind of pensive. Um, but for the Daka and the uh, Pisasha, I, I love it. I love it. Uh, particularly the tiger with a little tilted little little head there with his bloody maw. Yeah, bloody cute. maw, tilted head. You're like, hey. <laughs> hey, what's happening? The They're all having a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because, uh, yeah, the, the Ganesh Katis... Like, given this kind of giant monstrous grin, he does make the tiger look like he's having the time of his life, you know, even though he's got <laughs> blood uh, all over his face. It's like, yeah. I know it's, I know it's counterintuitive, but I just, I feel bad for the DACA. Whenever they're on screen, I just feel bad for them because I know how they were created. Oh, yeah. And they're kind of tragic beings. And yet, yes, they're monsters. They're little, they're little monsters, but. I just can't help but feel bad for him. You know? uh, They're mean, orphaned. They're all orphans. That means you're a, you're a good man. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. beyond just being orphans. They are pretty much... Their fate is not unlike that of the demon child, except they even don't have, like... Uh, how do you call it? Um, fuck. Auto- reason for existence, even. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, uh, not sentience, but... Uh, fuck, there's a word for it. Well, whatever. But basically, they're robbed of their own uh individuality because they are basically mm. slave slave soldiers you know who are mind controlled they're like empty vessels but they are still human beings uh but yeah they're just transformed into monsters or monstrified in the womb and then used as a you know cannon fodder basically because they don't care if they die it's biological warfare basically we talked about it of course in volume yeah. 27 yeah. i suppose yeah yeah, which is a, it's an interesting thing to just to have explored on Mira's mm-hmm. uh, side, honestly. He he didn't have to, but the idea of, yeah, what if uh, an apostle yeah. tries to transform this system and these properties into a, a war instrument of what, what would that look like? And uh, yeah, it's pretty scary. It's, I mean, it is. We've never, I don't think we've made the comparison, but it is like it's his version of pseudo-apostles. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. And the way it's done, I mean, now we're kind of going back on <laughs> volume 27, but the way it's done is very interesting to me. The fact he captured. Industrialized. Yeah, yeah. he captured Apostle, sued them all together with, you know, Daiba, you know, told some guys to control the process, to kind of industrialize it. But at the same time, he's still very, he's industrialized, but he does feel very artisanal still. You know what I mean? Like they can't make too many of them because it's a, it's a huge, machine or device i don't even know how you call that thing reminds me of dune actually mm-hmm. anyway uh yeah so you you've got that whole process and just just very interesting in general and also that's also something i would be curious to have seen uh falconia's take on it basically where they have a lot of apostles presumably some who can like nico from the dreamcast game mass produce super soldiers uh, yeah. Air quotes. So yeah, I would have been curious to see to see that take on on, on this. 
Yeah. Willing super soldiers. We've talked about it a number of times yeah. over the past decade. Yeah. But like humans saying like, no, no, pick me. No, no, pick me. Like you've been selected for the pseudo apostle <laughs> lottery. And like, yes. And if you steal an apple, you've been sent to the rehabilitation center where you've been turned <laughs> to a pseudo apostle super soldier. And you're like, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these guys are in the line together. Uh-oh. I'm mm-hmm. happy to go. And me, not so much. Well, don't worry. Back when you come out, you'll all be of the same mind. Yeah, of course. No mind. Yeah. It's like uh, what uh, Griff says um, when he sees first mule. They're, they're going to a place where they will become one. Mm-hmm. Mm, must, must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I uh, don't have much to say about the the, the Pishasha preview image. Uh, looks look real cute. Cute eyes. Yeah, I like it. It's very intense. I mean, I think it's mm-hmm. a great, uh, it's a great piece for for that. You know, it, it looks intense. It's a great design. Uh, uh, Gobs and Grails, you didn't talk about the the posters much. You guys go ahead. Oh gosh. Well, uh, I guess one thing that stood out to me about the Daka and Pishacha painting is just the the kind of the orange. Yeah. I, I want to call it a glow. There's almost like a, it's the, I'm presumably the fire in the background, but I just like how, how almost mm-hmm. metallic it looks. Yeah. It's very mm. sleek looking. And, uh, I guess the thing that stood out to me about that painting was just how the, um, the Pishasha itself, like the, the stripes, like just like real tiger stripes are not uniform looking. And I think that gives its face a lot of character. Mm. And also with the Pishasha that we see in the volume itself, it's, Got its own unique stripes, which, you know, from an artistic standpoint, is is very fun to to watch play out. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just really enjoyed that. Talk about attention to detail, right? Right. It's interesting because this is obviously an oil painting, but if you look at the brushwork on the Daka's armor, like it has a particular metallic sheen to it, which is different from the texture of the fur, but it's all the same medium. It's all oil. You yeah, know? different. That's pretty pretty impressive. Different brush different brushes, different brush strokes. And even within the medium itself, there might be more acrylic on some items and more oil on some items, I'm Mm. guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, I think, I forgot if it's in the artwork of Berserk, but he, in one of the interviews, he talked about his process for mixing, you know, because oil, just pure oil paintings, just the process is very long because it got to dry and stuff. Yeah. So he tried to mix it up. Uh, with acrylics and he used other stuff to like, you know, accelerate the process. I mean, that's kind of the kind of thing where if you're not a painter, you won't understand it. So I don't understand it basically. But yeah, he, he did use a, he did try a number of things. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised that was the case, Graham. Yeah. Not all uniform looking, which I think does add to the texture, like Walter was saying. Yeah. I do, I do love the whole furry, the ears look. Yeah, uh, you know you want you want to rub your face in them. <laughs> yeah, then then you get eaten up. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, that painting's very hellish, and I also feel for the Daka, even though they're you know, like you said, they're monsters. There's a couple of them with really kind of sad expressions on their face, like mm-hmm. they look a little. Like sad or fearful, confused, maybe. lost, yeah, confused, yeah. <clears throat> so, a couple of them look like they're photo bombing a little bit. One's in the back, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make sure I'm in there. Make sure Glorp is in there. 
Get in there, Glorp. <laughs> uh, the episode is yours. I don't have anything else to say about uh, these that are preceding pages. Uh, I think it's yours, Gobs. All right. Sounds good. So it's time to do, 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 duel. <laughs> in this episode, Guts and Serpico finally have a rematch after a long time of traveling as companions. Serpico uses the columns surrounding him, or pillars, uh, to his advantage, preventing Guts' sword swings from reaching their typical velocity. Isidro stands in awe watching the two fight, while Shirke is horrified. While in the midst of the fight, Serpico thinks of Guts, regarding him as a presence impossible to ignore. While he is grateful of his positive impact on Farnese, he is fearful of Guts killing her while the power of the Berserker armor is unleashed. Serpico's moment finally comes when there is only one pillar left. He evades Guts' swing, uh, jumping his legs over it while the sword smashes the, the column to pieces. The ceiling above Guts starts to crumble and fall while Serpico prepares to land his winning blow. However, Guts uses his sword to shield his head from the falling bricks, turning his sword flat and finally swatting Serpico to the floor, winning the duel. So, some things that I noted is uh, how amazingly choreographed this sword fight is. Uh, times like this, it reminds you that Guts is actually a brilliant tactician along with his having superhuman strength. Um. Serpico makes great use of his surroundings to make the fight even, you know, more even, and it gives him a plausible way to win the fight in the reader's mind. He's always been incredibly cunning, and this is another example of that. I noticed a comment that Evil Era made that was really funny. Um, while Serpico was fighting, she was like, oh, not bad for a maid. Yeah. <laughs> She's always yeah. thinking lowly of Serpico because that's all she sees him as is the, the cook and the yeah. person that carries the bags. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this episode was mostly from Serpico's point of view, which kept things interesting, not knowing what was going on in Guts's head this time around. It made Guts seem like more of a force that Serpico was up against. Um, and depicted on the page, I felt like we got to see the guts that Serpico saw. Mm. Like he was like, holy shit, this dude's badass. <laughs> That's a great observation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Serpico's plan final blow reminded me a little bit of uh, Griffith during his second duel with guts. Uh, Griffith's emotions were running high, but he was so sure his parry would do the trick. In the end, of course, Guts pulled off something completely unexpected, just like what he did with Serpico. Good episode. Oh. Yeah, very. your observations were spot on. Uh, definitely agree with the choreography part. To me, uh, it reminds me uh, of the, his fight against Zod on the Hill of Swords, you know, as far as the level of technical exchanges of blows goes. It's, it's very, yeah. very nicely done. It's less... Since it's not in the open air, it's uh, it's less complex to to uh, follow, but it it is very nicely sought out and executed. And also, uh, really like about this the fact it's from Serpico's perspective, and that yeah, you don't see guts, uh, you you don't see guts sword at all because he's he's depicted as like the enemy, and so he's basically this kind of overwhelming and undefeatable force that Serpico's trying 
to beat through his own means and 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 fails to do. Um, there's one thing I'll let Walter talk about because I, you know, he wanted to earlier. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that Serpico references uh, Miyamoto Musashi's uh, famous book Gorincho, the Book of Five Rings, uh, when he's talking about. Uh, for it's at the beginning. Uh, I don't know who Darkos translated it, but he basically it's how perceiving the enemy's intention to attack and controlling the movement of the enemy is key to winning a battle. So uh, yeah, it's at the beginning when he's saying basically that guts cannot uh, swing his sword at full force uh, because mm-hmm. of the pillars. So it is interesting to me that uh, yeah he would use a turn of phrase that that is from uh, from that famous book. I didn't know it was directly. I mean, I understand the idea of controlling the conditions of the battlefield if you can. I didn't know that was specifically from Gorn. No, show that's cool. Yeah, the the uh, the expression itself, like he oh, is, okay. is from is by it's coined because say something about uh, holding a pillow or something like that. It's got nothing to do with uh, sword fighting. It's really something. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know what I mean? Uh, if you translate it literally, it doesn't mean anything. It's really within that context. Yeah, it's a turn of phrase. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, something idiomatic. So, yeah, it, there's, there's no real doubt. At least, uh, I think, that it, that is from there. And it makes sense. I mean, you know, Greta's Japanese swordsman. Uh, yeah, makes sense that uh, Serpico as a master tactician would be uh, shown to, to be, uh, yeah, of the same mind. Mm. His um, Serpico gets into, first of all, I love that you pointed out the fact that this is all from Serpico's perspective. Extremely rare for an episode to do it to this, to, to this level, for it to be one character's focus, and it's not Guts, you know? So I think that's great. It's really a cool, cool idea of seeing Guts as an opposing force here. Uh, we get to Serpico's motivation, to his explicit motivation, of course. It's just a, it's a reiteration of what we saw on the beach, of course, that that Guts will lose control and Farnese will be killed as a result. And that's why he'll never allow that to happen. That's why he's fighting right now is to basically uh, rescue future tense uh, Farnese from being joined with this man Mm -hmm. who's impossible to ignore. Um, But I like that we also get introspection from Serpico that, you know, he's been a background character. I think he even admits as much that, you know, this is Farnese's journey. He's just there alongside supporting her. But he has changed through his encounters with Guts as well. So he has grown and he has changed as well, um, which is a building on something that the mother of Lady Vendimian had said as well. So it's kind of adding to that, that he has grown and changed along with this journey as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And similar similar in, in terms of the Griffith nature of this, the way this fight ends, it's like he had one specific plan in mind and he knew what he was going to do when that happened. And he executed on that, but it wasn't enough because, you know, Gus is Guts. Uh, there's two there's two moments in his episodes where Gus improvises to his, you know, you know, benefit. One is when he thrusts and we see in the page before his hands are in a certain position. And then he swaps his hands positions because he anticipates that Serpico will slash at his hand. So he makes it so that the iron hand is what gets slashed. Mm. So that's a very cool Attention to detail there. Right. And the same when the rocks are falling. Guts improvises and immediately turns it so it's the flat of the blade over his head and uses the pillars to crumb, continue the, the blow down. Pretty cool. Pretty cool uh, subversion of expectations in this last moments of the fight. You know, it's all building to a crescendo and the crescendo is Guts is weak and is vulnerable and Serpico striking. And yet, and yet, 
gut still finds he a way. He still wins. It's a very, very guts moment. It's one of, one of cool. the, the big gut, the guts moments, I think, because it happens like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also, you know, <clears throat> another thing is that we often see guts as a guy, as a little guy, you know, fighting against a giant fucking monster yeah, that can just swat him away. It's like, blah. And, and then <laughs> you see guts for what he is. Which is even against an excellent source fighter like Serpico, he's faster, stronger. And he just reacts so quickly, uh, and he anticipates he's got the instincts, and so that's that's great, I think. Yeah, it's like the it's like situational observation where yeah. at a moment's notice, that's that's what makes Gut so special is that he can change a strategy or change his actions without any uh, preamble, which. That's what I really liked about this fight is just how, you know, Guts is just reacting from moment to moment after Serpico had, you know, come up with this idea that he thought was going to, you know, trump him. So that that is really what makes Berserk uh, stand out in this way with fight scenes. It's not just about the story. It's not just about the fight, but the two of them put together that, you know, with character motivations sprinkled in with, you know, great fight choreography like each panel is communicating something specific which you know you really take for granted but in the recent uh continuation episodes you really learn to appreciate just how difficult this is to do yeah and expanding on the other characters reactions to that fight while improving you know including their character development is just really 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 cool stuff yeah especially introducing sometimes what mary will do is uh he introduced things where you you feel like it's obvious, it's self-evident. It's, it's always been the case. And yeah. then you're like, when you think back, you're like, well, actually, it's been mentioned once, like four pages ago, once, two volumes ago, and maybe one other time, and that's it. You know, something has been mentioned twice, or you got like an inkling of it uh, a couple of times, but it's often... You know, and that, that ability to make something seem like it was always a case and it's always been, it's a very natural development without actually having to show it again and again and again and again. That takes real, real skill and art history. And yeah, that's not a given for, for, for anybody, anyone. Um, Walter, maybe you want to talk about the, um, Shuriken's reaction, what she picks up during the fight? Yeah. So Serpico, of course, is, in his own head, kind of <laughs> reliving his motivations for this fight when he has that image of uh, the activated armor stabbing Farnese. And that's the image that Serpico, sorry, that, that Shirke gets. Uh, you see that through thought transference, a little effect coming from Shirke's head. Mm. And so Shirke is getting the message. She understands what she thinks, what Serpico thinks is yeah. at stake and the purpose of this fight. So I like that that detail was included because it's able to communicate to readers and to Shirke about what's happening behind the scenes here. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, the way I feel it happens is that because it's something that's so strong in his mind, like a warrior mm-hmm. that's so strong, that's why she can pick it up. You know, clearly, like she she gets a flash of it. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's how I interpret it, and I like it a lot. And yeah, I feel it's worth mentioning because since we get a full page before. It's on the page afterwards, and people might not, especially like the way it's, um, you know, in Japanese, it's maybe a little more obvious, but because she just a Serpico in this case, uh, mm-hmm. in, in English, it's less clear that she's picking up what he's saying, 
versus just, uh, I don't know, just calling to him or whatever. Uh, of course, until you see the next episode where it's made clear. But yeah, I, I think that's important to, to talk about. Yeah, it is kind of underlined in the next episode. I do think it's possible to miss that if you don't have that next episode right ready at hand. You might have missed that pa- that panel for sure. Yeah. Um, this is also the episode that I was reading that came out when you and I were in Paris when I visited you. Oh, wow, really? Uh, in 2005. Yeah, this was Damn. the one that it, it, it was one of those things where like – you know, the, the episode came out while we were there. We got to read it live. That was like, that was, that was this one. Yeah, I read that. We read it together hand in hand. There you go. No. <laughs> I will never forget this moment. Well, that I've forgotten until. <laughs> she just did. <laughs> just 30 seconds ago. Yeah. yeah. I remember we went to see the, the third uh, Star Wars prequel. Uh, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. Unlimited power. I remember. Ah, uh, we laughed a lot at that. Oh, yeah. boy. What a good time. Oh, man. Yeah. Those were the days. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, this episode came out when episode three came out. There you go. <laughs> um, we didn't mention it because it's not that worth mentioning, but you know, Serpico goes for a couple of weak spots in this episode. Uh, it reminds me a lot of, and it kind of goes without saying, right? That this reminds me a lot of their duel in volume 19 uh, when Serpico yeah. was it 17? 17. 17. 19. 17. 17. My bad. No, wait. Yeah. When Ser- Is it 17? No, it's 19. It's 19. It's 19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's as Guts is emerging from that cave with yeah. the goat guy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, because Serpico had, again, set the conditions of the battle so well, uh, similar thing here. And I love the, the thoughtfulness of everything, all the attention to detail with how Serpico set this up. And not just that, also how he fights. You know, he goes for Guts' hand. He goes for what seems like Guts' eye. Super vulnerable points for Guts. And you can see the worry on Guts' face whenever that that. Uh, stab just barely yeah. misses his face yeah. there, you know. And I mean, well, I'll talk about it just uh, afterwards, but yeah, it's it's a case where Serpico is uh, dangerous enough of an opponent that it's not it's not uh, a walk in the park for guts. It's not something where there's no stakes. Like, he can actually be killed if he slips up. Mm-hmm. It, it's a... Uh, it's interesting to... And again, it goes back to what Grail was saying. It's a very tight line to show a fight where one opponent is overwhelmingly strong and, and, and better than the other. And yet, the other one is not weak. He's still very strong and he's still dangerous in this case. It's just that you can't slip up. And it's also, I mean, in addition to making for good drama and a good story and, and you know, a tense fight, it's also how it is in real life. Like, you can be, I don't know, a boxing world champion if some guy stabs you in the back or if you slip on something, whatever. You can't you can get killed easily in life. It's like that. You can be the best and on a bad day, in bad condition, uh, wounded in an environment that's not uh, conductive to your fighting style. You can still be lose. And, and so that is very real. And I think that's also what gives power to the scene. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a last thing is that I love to see Puck as the Undertaker. <laughs> <laughs> I always loved. I, I watched uh, some some WWF back when I was uh, a kid, and I always loved the Undertaker the most. So it is a, an endless delight for me to see Puck as the Undertaker. <laughs> it, it, it was a I... great delight to see a, a wrestling reference that I actually recognized, besides the Hulk, uh, well, Hulk Hogan reference back in the day. I, I never recognized that as an Undertaker reference. Really? Like the actual wrestler. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's the yeah, hair it and the hat. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, it is. It absolutely is. I mean, the hair in front of the face, uh, the, the garments and everything, it is 100% the Undertaker. And... 
What well, yeah, he actually <laughs> does it a few times. I think uh, there's a couple. Uh, there's, there's a few few cases of uh, puck dress like that. So yeah, pretty funny. That is how I felt in, while reading the last episode. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, again. It's funny that even Mura himself through Puck is commenting that yes, her pico's gonna croak. <laughs> it's great. It's just great. You know, honestly, I remember at the time I was before before this happened, and before the the the, the, the time in the room where they say, "Well, what about a fight?" I was sort of like, "How is this going to be resolved?" Like they had this kind of rivalry, but it's a bit ridiculous because Gat is obviously stronger than Serpico. I mean, it's no contest. So how do you how do you tie that thread? To end that storyline, yeah, and that is that is not easy to do, and to be able to weave it in with Farnese getting them a ship, uh, bringing Roderick, how do they find the ship? So it's, it's woven in like that. It's crazy with the attack on the ball, with the invasion of Ritanis by the Pshasha and Makara, with then the fight against Daiba, the escape by ship, then the invasion by Ganeshka, and then the surprise attack by Griffiths and his troops. That stuff is insane, like, storyline uh, conception. Um, just wanted to emphasize that, because I remember, like, it's always easy, retrospectively, to be like, yeah, sure, sure, it was always going to be the case. But when we were actually guessing, trying to figure out what, what's coming next, uh, it's not easy to do. Like, that stuff, that's why, you know, we say Mira's a genius, because... Yeah, to actually come up with this stuff and the fact it all weaves together so naturally, that's crazy hard to do. So, yeah, props to the man. Uh, to build on that, something I mentioned in the chat just recently is the fact that the next two episodes with Serpico kind of lock him into the trajectory that he's been on since right yeah. now. Him burying the hatchet, so to speak, with guts, being fully embraced by the group despite this fight and all that rescuing Farnese in this last little moment where he flies and grabs her in the next couple episodes. That's it for him. You know what I mean? There's not a whole lot more development happening with Serpico behind the scenes. Yeah, He shines, uh, he shines in the fight uh, against Daiba. He's got, he's, he's a little moment. Yeah, sure. But yeah, the, uh, I, I basically for the, you know, the sea journey to the island, he's clearly kind of full on. And I think that's mostly because Farnese herself She's really thriving with her uh, learning of magic, and she's really like, like she's on her best life. She's she's you know back finally yeah. back on the right path, and she's really thriving. It's everything's great for her. Well, except that she's still got that crush on gods that's going nowhere, and that she knows is not really going anywhere. But otherwise, she's really hundred percent. And Serpico is like, well, okay, what do I do now? And I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, we, we are not going to really see any of that now. But uh, yeah, I always thought that the island would be a turning point for him. And specifically afterwards, like what happened after they leave, he would have to be like, I'm not just going to be following around because I have nothing better to do. I've got to have my own resolve. I've got to have something like decide for myself. And stuff mm-hmm. that Murat teased before with the Sylphs. The fact that, and that he teases in the, also this one, it's like, he tried to be the cool-headed guy who's just like nothing's a trouble, but actually he's been changed a lot without even realizing it. And uh, yeah, that was building to something. Whoops. Yes, uh, I agree. And it does feel like 
he was kind of paused uh, yeah. for development for between this moment right here and where we ended up with Mira passing away early. Yeah. Uh, that it inevitably that check was going to get cashed yeah. in some way. The, uh, the, uh, the island being a turning point for everybody else, or it should have been anyway, uh, would make sense. Uh, we just never got that. So, yeah, my, my point is it's just it's just too bad the way things went for his character. Yeah. Because of all of the of the entire cast, I feel like, you know, we kind of waited a long time for what's next and we never truly got it. So, hmm. well, yeah, well, there's also Azan, which I, I yeah, yeah, which yeah. is more minor, sure. to be fair. He's he's a he's a more minor character, but still, it's like same thing. He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there because he wasn't there. Then you know you you could feel there was a point where he was gonna come back a bit more into his own and have some reserve or have some little development. And it's just well, that wasn't to be. So yeah, too bad. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to the to the next one, suzerain of the ecclesiastical authority, which is a fancy way of saying uh, boss of uh, the religious. Not order, but yeah, all that sphere of influence. And of course, it refers to Federico de Vendimian. So yeah, the episode opens as Serpico gets smacked right on top of the head and falls on his face. Um, he asks the gods if he dread his moves and knew for the pillar, but no, it was just instinct and reflexes like we've been mentioning. Shiruke, who had perceived Serpico's worries that Gus may kill Farnese during the fight, assures him that she will never let anything like that happen. Then as they get going, Isidro has guts is they were fighting for real, which he confirms to be the case, and adding that Serpico's survival was by luck, and not something he could have ensured, because he was just too good for that. Uh, he tells him that is what it's like to be a swordsman, and it's a cold truth that leaves Isidro uneasy. So Isidro does tell him afterwards that Guts didn't use his opposite weapons nor the armor because they had agreed to a sword fight and that he himself used that earnestness from Guts to his advantage. And that same reasoning gets Serpico to trust that Guts' iron will can prevent the worst from happening with the armor. Then Gus tells them to get a move on because he got the bad feelings about the monsters or so, and they all realize that the cushion on slot is uh, just a matter of time, with the vanguard likely targeting the ball where the elite is gathered, and in short, Fanny is in danger. Now back on the ball, Federico is, uh, is in his element as one of the most powerful men in the Holy See. He's giving a speech to uh, all of this uh, before the assembled armies depart for battle. And after his toast, Magnifico seizes his chance to announce Roderick and Farnes' wedding to be, only Farnes has gone off to look for Serpico, and so it's a big-time fail for him. And at that moment, as time seems frozen in his embarrassment, we cut to the balcony outside the venue where Tiger stokes, ready to attack. So yeah, it is a very dense episode that features development from Isidro and Serpico, as well as a pledge of result from Shiruke regarding the armor, all of it, all of which are very important. Um, what I liked about it, besides all I've already said about the, the, the fact the outcome of the fight was not sure or anything like that and not planned, which you guys can talk about later, is that Gus tells Epico he doesn't even have any specific plans for when he meets with Farnese. He just meant to go see her and take it from there, which makes Serpico smile at how differently they approach things. It's something I found interesting because I think it's very real. Once again, uh, there are some people who like need to plan interactions. They need to plan what they say to people when they meet them in the morning and stuff like that. People who really need that kind of control of what's going on. 
Whereas, I mean, for me personally, I'm just always making it up as I go. You know, I don't really plan stuff in advance in that way. Like interactions, when I want to go see someone, I don't think in advance of what I'll be saying to them or whatever. So, yeah, I just felt that so that was very real and fitting for both Serpico's character and Gus's character. Also interesting, the fact the Sylphs uh, miss Serpico and his equipment, like the cloak, really jumps in his face, almost like <laughs> a pet. Uh, a puppy. Yeah, so was, that was really great. And uh, again, building from what you had explained when they first got the equipment. And also the fact that Serpico had changed. He was probably a bit of broken to to have to part with these. And, you know, he's b- glad to have them back. And they're glad to that he having them back. So, yeah, so that was pretty great. Um, I like on the bold side of things... Uh, that uh, we learn that this alliance from the Holy See nations is unprecedented. It's really something this like once upon a lifetime kind of thing, uh, and that it's all possible because of uh, Federico de Vendemian, and that reinforces how big of a deal he is. Like he's basically uh, the de facto leader of the Holy See. Like he's not the the pontiff or anything, but that he's a guy calling the shots, and that aspect of. A financier uh, being more powerful than a king, it's a real thing that happened uh, in history, as that was the uh, Knight Templars were butchered by the French king, you know, because uh, he, he was in debt with them and he didn't like it. So he had, a, he had them all killed. Um, and and uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting to just show how big of a deal he is. Uh, and also, lastly, exceptional scene with Magnifico. I mean, his embarrassment, the shop of him staring at his hand. Uh, to, to me, it's legendary. It's empty, empty hand. Yeah, it's, it's just fucking legendary. <laughs> and and his contrite face on the next page when his father asks him what's going on. I mean, <laughs> amazing, amazing stuff. And and uh, Bonus is uh, his mother finding herself with a look mm. of uh, told, yeah, on her face. <laughs> just great. And, and the, the fact, you know, it's all because of Serpico too. Because Serpico went to stop Gus from meeting with her. So she went looking for him, and that's how it happened. It's, again, you know, going back to, like, how you plan developments and stuff. This kind of stuff, it feels so natural, but it's actually insane to think of it like that. It's so hard and so great. And so, yeah. Okay, I've talked enough. What do you guys think? <laughs> the the ending, I just wanted to say, as you were just descri- describing the events that happen on just two pages, you know, when, when Magnifico unveils his plan and it falls on its face in the same page and then you see his it honestly reminds me of like you can see this happening in seinfeld like this is something <laughs> yeah, george is pulling yeah. you know <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> imagine george is magnifico and it works just as well <laughs> anyway what i really like about this episode and it's just a small little thing it's isidro confronting guts about the serious nature of this fight because from his perspective, you know, there's these are two adults in his life that are trying to kill each other. Right? Yeah. As a kid, that's got to be uh, pretty pretty heated, yeah, like ruinous, even. You know what I mean? They, they are kind of role models for him too. Exactly. Yeah. But honestly, kind of co-parents in a way. And I'm sure he doesn't think of it like that, but they absolutely are. They're effectively his caretakers. You know. Yeah. So uh, just it's, that's a dimension to this fight that I would not have normally considered if Miura did not address it. But he does address it, you know, and you can see the shock on his face that, yeah, Gut says, yeah, we were really trying to kill each other right there. Yeah. So And Shuruka is in tears. You know, she's been with yeah. them for just a month, but she's also like kind of she's shook uh, mm-hmm. by, by this turn of event. Whereas uh, what's also interesting, both of them are like, eh, that's yeah. life. 
This was inevitable, is the look on their faces. Like, yeah, this is always going to happen, you guys. Yeah. You guys weren't aware of this shit? Um, the other thing about Guts, he, he just says he doesn't have a plan, as you already addressed, as he'll, uh, he'll go see her. That's for sure. That's what Guts says. I mean, he does have a, a key reason that he set out for this, is that he don't think it's, he thinks it's a pretty raw deal. Yeah. That they're taking away, you know, Casca's uh, babysitter, effectively. But also, I mean, more core to that. I feel like Guts knows something's amiss here. Yeah. And that this is not the right place for Farnese. He never says that. You know, he never says it that specifically. But I feel like that's truly what motivates him here is that he, Farnese is part of their group. Yeah. And she's being taken a whisked away, basically, without any input from the group. And it feels wrong to him. So, yeah, I definitely agree. It. And I mean, it's what we see in the, in their little room. It's, he he's torn between what he's been doing ever since uh, the eclipse and even before that, maybe leaving the band of the Falcon, where it's like, I won't get involved with people. And that goes back all the way to his childhood, uh, his miserable childhood, where he was, you know, it's kind of every man for himself. You've got Gambino that's not really looking out for him or anything, so he's got to be his own man, even as a mm-hmm. kid. And yeah, he's been, these people in a short amount of time have married enough to him that he's willing to be like, no, I'll actually get involved. I'll go see her at least to see if that's what she really wants. Right. And I think that's a big turn for him. It's a big turn for him. And it shows it's, it's back to what people say where, you know, in the beginning of the series, he's very, uh, how to say, he keeps people at, at a distance. He's very cynical. He's, he's trying to, to still himself and be cold and close his heart so that he's not hurt again and that you know, doesn't want to get involved with other people. If they die, it's not his problem. And it shows that basically, you know, that that in a, in a span of a couple of years that's just broken down and he, and he actually back to letting people into his life again. Yeah, he's grown. Companions matter to him and he realizes the importance of them. Yeah. So And he's yeah. willing to be... Like he's also willing to open himself to being hurt again, because that's that's you know like if you go all the way to the bottom line is, you know, pu- pushing people away is a way not to get hurt if they mm-hmm. you know get hurt or if they betray you. Which is what happened with Griffiths big time. So it's also making himself vulnerable. Going to her, there's also the risk. She say, yeah, sorry, I don't want to stay with you guys anymore. Go fuck yourself, uh, <laughs> and and it'd be like, well, bummer. But, uh, yeah, it's willing to take that step to open yourself. So that's a big step. That's a step. Some, some people never take it in their life. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's a big deal. You were right to mention it. I also remember in this episode when it came out, just the sheer amount of text and everyone was just like, fuck, <laughs> too much text. <laughs> that's a doozy. It's going to be a while before we see a translation on this one. And then, of course, most of it is just fucking like just real preachy overtalk from Van Demian, basically saying we are gathered here today to kill Kushans and let's let's uh, let's let's go for it, guys. Uh, I don't know. I think the, there's a fair bit of talk for between the groups. That's very important. So no, no, I'm saying specifically the Vendemian pages, yeah. the, the ones that really floored me at the time. Just seeing the amount of things, yeah, yeah. happening on the page I, from the perspective of someone that reads these episodes as they come out. When I see a ton of Japanese text, I get a little anxious, <laughs> knowing that it's, it's it will be obscured for me for a while. Yeah, there's also the fact. I mean, it's a uh, fairly difficult stuff. Not common dialogue where yep. it's just like, hey, okay, let's go, come here, you know, simple stuff. 
Um, and it's what I mentioned with the title. It's kind of a complex title to refer to the fact Vendimion is the one that's ruling over the Holy See, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's what, what uh, Magnifico comments on. Uh, that he's not the actual reader in title, but he's the one that's bankrolling pretty much every country in the Holy Sea Alliance. And he's the one that made the alliance possible. And the way he's done it is also because he does intend most likely to, uh, you know, collect the pieces of Midland after his reclaim from the cushions. So it's mm-hmm. a very banker style, financial guy, spreadsheet view of things, which is interesting. Uh, compared to what actually happens when the Pichacha come in, the monstrous fuck come in. And I know you, you, you loved, I mean, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I know you loved the facing off between Ganishka and Vandimion, uh, Walter. Oh, yeah. I fucking love it. It's, that's for several episodes ahead, though. <laughs> um, what the thing is, you know, Vandimion's very confident and as, as Erdorodorik says, it has a strong presence yeah. uh, of pers- pers- personality in this room here. Because uh, he knows, he knows the balance sheets of everybody in the room. You know that gives you a certain level of power in a room like this. But I'll tell you, as the person that basically authored this whole uh, coalition, his intelligence work—it it needs some work. The mm. fact that he's saying, "Yes, yes, this is enough to topple the cushion might." Is it though? Are are you are you fucking clueless, dude? Like, how good are your survey crews? That you're paying to assess the actual enemy because they're going to get mopped in like three or four episodes here. You know what I mean? Like what? this coalition ain't going to cut it. Yeah, it, well, it's I agree with you. Um, but what, I think what it shows, because it's also like the surprise attack. The, the fact is a surprise attack from the cushions is a big deal. So because had they faced off in battle on an open field maybe would have been a little bit different without the magical aspect as well so it's again it's a case of yeah Vendimion is a spreadsheet guy he's not a guy Mm -hmm. that's actually on the ground and doing the actual work you know the grant work so I I think it makes sense that he would be overconfident and about to get uh, his ass handed out to him and he's probably the kind of guy who'll be like well you know Ganishka will need a guy to take care of all that shit, so no problem. Mm. Hi. I mean specifically when they actually go out to the field, you know, field of battle outside of Vertanis, and they actually face yeah. the surprise appearance of all the cushions on their border, like right there outside of town. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it was the enough enough troops. Yeah, but well, he seems very confident here. I mean, I mean, it's because they're also they're not. I I forgot if they were fully deployed or not. I don't even mm. remember. I don't remember. That is, that is volume 31 is one of my like blurry points in the series, honestly. Yeah, because there's also the matter of the, the fleet gets burned to the ground. The city, like the, the Pichasha attack is, is uh, devastating to it. Right. So it's, That's true. That's true. Yeah. There's an unaccounted for loss of forces within Britannus yeah. before they de- get deployed. That's true. So there's that whole aspect plus the fact, yeah, surprise attack. Um, it's, I mean, back to what I was saying earlier, it's all masterfully executed because Vendimir really does get his ascended to him and it shows the limit of man when mm-hmm. faced with uh, superior power. It also shows, I, I want to say, kind of the... Uh, white man arrogance of like mm-hmm. within any it's something magnifical comments on it's like he's got his checkboard and he's happy to rule over that and not to look outside of that and so 
in his view, he's probably thinking, well, we're the greatest there is. Nobody's better than us. And then mm. you got Ganishka with his empire that's coming in. It's like, yeah, you sure about that, boy? They're just <laughs> foreigners, though. They're just they're just dirty foreigners. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I'm saying. It's like yeah, he's, he's got his understanding of the world from his, like, he's, he's the center of the world in his view. And then mm-hmm. he's got somebody that come in that destroyed Midland. And his perspective was probably, well, Midland was weakened. And so that's why they fell. But if like all of the OLC countries get against them, no problem. We'll, we'll crush them. And it's like, actually, not really, because he brought his whole empire's forces and it's as big, if not bigger than the whole of the Holy See, you know, countries. So yeah. I, I do like that aspect. It's something, and, and you know, it's also not something like there's no, uh, deliberate political commentary on it. It's not trying to make a point or whatever. It's just the way it is because, again, it's very real. It's like it's real shit. You try, you think you're the best, and then the, you know, Genghis kind of comes and fucks you up, and that's how it is. So yeah. <laughs> I, li- I like that. I mean, for example, you take like India before even China, back in, you know, 4000 BC, whatever, they were a fucking force. They were huge really monstrously strong and so you get countries like that and that lasted for like empires that lasted for a long time saying you think about the egyptians for example nothing new but in history there were empires that lasted for a long time that had incredible might that were technically technologically very advanced uh and that all the people in other parts of the world would think oh these guys are just backwaters whatever so yeah seeing that confrontation of of these two mites um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just very interesting to me. That could have been absolutely a focal point. Like I could see how, because of the particular circumstance for Ganeshka deploying his forces like this was specifically about Griffith. So it's like these two empires that would not normally come into such close contact yeah. are forcefully put into contact. And so, yeah, there absolutely were probably variables or gaps in their knowledge mm. or um, Vendimian's knowledge of the outside. I can just... Imagine him with his advisors and he's like, Ganishka, never heard of you. And everyone in the room just laughs because they're paid to laugh at his jokes. Mm. <laughs> it would have been good. Yeah, I think in another series, this could have been like the whole series. Like the point of it would just be like mm-hmm. this clash between these two civilizations, this motley alliance united uh, around that dogma of, of the Holy See versus, you know, an empire made of various clans that were bound together by a bloodthirsty empire, uh, emperor, that kind of stuff. And what's interesting, what is extremely interesting to me here is that Mura's just using it as a narrative device to get yeah. to Fantasia, basically. And again, same thing, and I'm repeating myself like an old man, but is a way it's done, like from volume 27 to volume 34, and the fact all of it just leads to one thing and you can tell like it was always leading to that from the beginning. And even within the story, it's clearly, uh, how to say hinted at and implied that it's all a plot. Like it's, it's a God hands plan from the beginning. Ganishka's little, uh, how to say rebellion is, is nothing. So that's just, that's fucking insane. Mm-hmm. From a storytelling perspective, it's, it's fucking insane to do it like that. And I love this part of the story because, yeah, it's so great. Is that all this confrontation, all this might, all this, all these people, it all amounts to Fantasia, Falconia, and Griffiths is a lord of the world. And that's, that's just great. 
And even the little Owen sequence here is kind of like a little peek behind the curtains of what will ultimately happen with Midland. You know, they're holding the pieces together. They're just struggling in this circumstance. They cannot keep Midland's survival guarantee. But it requires Griffith to arrive on the scene in the next volume or two with the pontiff and Charlotte in tow and immediately solidifying the future of, well, (laughs) not the future of Midland anymore, but the future of, uh, you know, that region. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And my my point is that Mira puts that as a point of focus. Yeah. That Midland on its own would not stand without Griffith's intervention. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a. The unity around Charlotte as a, as a queen is really, I mean, that's also, that's also great. Uh, I love the commentary of Roderick and Magnifico on this. Magnifico, so to go back a bit on him. So this episode is basically his downfall. After that, he's, he's cool and his coolness builds up up to this point where you're like, damn, this guy's really devious. And like his mother says, he's really like, he's got some Vendemian in him. All right. You know? But then it's like his big downfall uh, due to Farnese or his own stupidity, however you want to put it. And then from there, you know, there on, he becomes kind of a more of a comical character. But de- yep. but despite of him, you know, it's one of the things where Mura pretty much just makes fun of him, uh, mm-hmm. and in a very specific way, where it's he really is. This, it's what Puck calls him, actually, Manihiko. Hiko is like he made, uh, it's a suffix for a, a son of a high noble or a prince or whatever. And so he's really this kind of a princeling guy who is not at all made to live in the real world with uh, us common guys, you know. And, and so he's always in discomfort and trying to lord people around and, and then getting in trouble because of it. So... It's pretty great. But yeah, in this, in this sequence, his commentary on, on Midland state and everything is very, how to say, it's very cynical and cold and very much like a 20 year old young guy would think. But it's yeah. also like, it's got some truth to it. Like these guys, the nobles of Midland and stuff, they're losers who are <laughs> bickering because they are like their kingdom is dead. Basically, it's already in ruins. So it it is a, it is an interesting point of view. Um, you know, again, very dense episode. When you think of everything that gets addressed in just like forty pages, uh, it's it's crazy. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a. I, I did give you the toughest episode of this mix uh, because it has the climax of the earth, the the aftermath of the fight, plus all this stuff with the ball uh, at the end of the ball. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, girl, what do you think? Well, uh, I guess beyond what you guys already spoke about with the politics and everything, like you guys said, it's it's a fantastic episode for that. The thing that I keep coming back to is uh, Shirke telling Serpico that she's never going to let what Serpico envisioned happen. And yeah. I, I think that that's what really pulls together all the big political moments, all the big epic fights – all the humor is just the the human tenderness between the characters that really you know keeps the plot moving and and gives people motivation to do what they do is that despite you know Shirke starting kind of distantly from the rest of the group and uh it, it's just such great character development to see her so concerned about Serpico and Farnese that she wants to take it upon herself when she's, you know, you know, younger and less experienced than them, that she wants to protect them. And I was just really touched by that. And that's the thought that I kind of came back to for this episode, even though there's so much going on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I went over it a bit quickly at the beginning, but uh, I agree with that. It's very, it's, what's interesting to me is that it's it's addressed very quickly, like in a way where if you don't pay attention, if you just flip the pages, you, you'll, you'll miss it or you might miss it. So right. I also like that aspect and the fact even, you know, like Isidro and even Puck are like, what's going on? Why was she reacting like that? Because she picked up on yeah. that and it's important to her. And, and yeah, and Serpico doesn't even react. He's just looking at her. And then the fact, uh, Serpico, like the resolution of all of this is that Serpico is like, okay, I'll, I'll entrust God's own, you, you know, might, uh, his unyielding spirit, as Dark Horse puts it, uh, to, to ensure that he won't fuck up with the armor. I'll trust him, basically. And that's yeah. how it all, their, their little enmity, uh, ends up. And I also think that that's great. It's very nuanced and subtle, and it's also a reflection. Like you see, during the fight, you see that the beast is just, you know, they are in guts, he's biting his lip to, to stay in control, to mm-hmm. not yeah. let it take over. And, and that is very, and it's a development. It's how you do, like, everything develops together at once. Back to the same thing. Is you, you've got everything going on. Political intrigue, uh, war is about to start. There's like four or five characters getting development at the same time on several levels. Uh, and it's all happening at the same, you know, all at once. It feels like it's all natural and it was all built, built up to and building to something afterwards. That stuff is extremely tough to pull, to pull off. Extremely mm-hmm. tough. Yeah, it was amazing. I, I really enjoyed this section of the story. Um, uh, like you all said, it, it it's an amazing culmination to uh, Serpico's arc here. And uh, what I, I really loved is, is how it showed the differences in, in their um, personalities and mm-hmm. how kind of carefree Guts is. But I feel like he only gets to be carefree in a fight. Um, well, not carefree, but, you know. Um, Let him loose. Loose, yeah. is because he is battle-hardened. And he's gone through yeah. this so many times. And Serpico, as much planning as he can do... And he does. He doesn't have as much experience as Guts does. And, uh. Yeah, I think so. It's true. I mean, Serpico's got a lot of dueling experience, but I feel like his weapon's not adapted to the kind of armor Guts is wearing. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, he's not, he's not as fast. He's not as strong. It's also a case of, I mean, I think what you're trying to say, you correct me if I'm wrong, but is that Guts, he's earned his position. You know, it's something in stories where a character can be badass. Okay, sure. Yeah. But, you know, he's got to, like, he's got to be earned at some point. You can't just be badass because, you know, the author says, well, this guy's badass. You know, Guts is badass from the beginning, right? But he's fighting against monsters. He gets smacked around. And so from time to time, because Mura did not abuse this, but from time to time, you get to see Guts fighting against enemies that he's clearly superior to. And that's very satisfying because you're like, okay, uh, he, he gets punched by Mazgus. He gets flung around by the cart. He gets, you know, rushing, you know, impales him in the sky or whatever. Then there's like the trolls. And it's like, there's a hundred trolls. And it's like, all right, uh, the meat grinder is getting ready. And that's <laughs> yeah. fucking, it's yeah. like, 
like an orgasm. You're like, fuck, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and it's, it's kind of the same here where obviously Serpico, you don't want him to die or maybe you want if you're one of these guys. Uh, but uh, yeah, the idea is like, yeah, Guts is fucking badass. It's, it, that's it. Yeah. It's, it's what Walter said very well. When it happens, he's, he's trying. He's got it all planned. He's trying and, and yet he still fails. Same things that happen on the cliff. And yeah. it shows the limits. Guts is just like he's that good. When you're the best, that's that's how it goes. And what I do like though is that he does say and repeatedly to Isidro, he couldn't ensure that Serpico would live because Serpico is not weak enough that he, it could be the case. Like he couldn't go easy right. on him. And I also yeah. like that because it does validate that Serpico is not just a wimp or a guy that doesn't matter, you know, his presence doesn't matter. And we see that again in the in the fight against the Kundalini later on. We saw a bit of it with the Kalpi. Serpico is actually a pretty reliable guy. And I've always felt like I'm getting into a bit into my own thing, but I always wanted to see a situation where it's like Isidro and Serpico in the forest, there's an apostle, something coming for them. And they're like, fuck, Guts isn't around, <laughs> Shiroke isn't around, what do we do? And Serpico's yeah. like, all right, now listen to me very carefully, you know. And you see, he looks at the, he looks right, he looks left. He's like, okay, I got a plan. And then they mm. use, he uses that tactical mind, that brilliant mind on, on something, someone else, you know, something, and they fuck it up, and like they they win. I've always wanted to see that, and I feel like Mira would have done that uh, at some point. And yeah, so that's just uh, yeah, that would have been cool as hell. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've got it all mapped out in my my head. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll write it down if people are interested. The problem is, yeah. uh, Serpico, he's got the mind for it, but he doesn't have like the brute force required to actually take down an apostle. And we saw what happened when they faced an yeah. apostle in Flora's place. You know, he can outsmart a lot of situations, uh, but when it comes to just pure strength, it, it just doesn't, doesn't have it. So well, yeah, they I would have to Serpico be Serpico. would use his environment yeah. to. Yeah, of course. Of course. Right. You think I didn't think of that? Come on. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you didn't think. I'm just saying, like, it's a different... It's yeah. not like just thinking of the solution will make it happen, you know? It's oh, yeah, like, sure. True. Sure, yeah. Um, that, 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 I mean, that would be, just to elaborate uh, for a sec, that would be the point is, like, they're against an opponent that's overwhelmingly strong. Again, something like, it's the same situation I've got. Something you can't just... They're not going to be able to win with, like, brute force or anything like that. It's too strong. So you need to actually... Use tactics, you know, kind of like in a tactical game. You know, you need to use the environment, uh, and and to just to to get victories through uh, your your smarts, basically. So yeah, yeah, I think that's what would have made it cool because guts, he does. Like, I've seen some people picture him as kind of a dullard, basically, where it's just yeah, he's strong <laughs> and fast, but. Like like Gobbs mentioned, he's actually a brilliant swordsman. It's what Puck says oh, yeah. uh, when he first faces against Zondark. He's a brilliant swordsman, and we see that again, switching his hand, uh, you know, using the the, the falling bricks. He's he doesn't plan ahead, but it's not because he's not smart. It's because he doesn't need to. He's he sinks quickly. It's yeah. reflexes and instinct. Jack Burton oh, yeah. would, would agree with that from uh, Picture of <laughs> Little China. All in the reflexes. So, yeah, and, and he's excellent. And something like an apostle, for example, wouldn't necessarily have that level. Or, I don't know, cockatrice, whatever you want, uh, you know, mm-hmm. would make an interesting fight to me mm-hmm. using that tactical mind on it. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Oh, for sure. One, one more thing to point out about this duel that I really love 
And I, I loved hearing you guys talk about it um, and how what it was like when it was coming out and you didn't know how it was going to be resolved. Uh, people were thinking Serpico was going to die. And you were thinking, well, how can this be resolved? And what I, what I love about this duel is that it, I feel like it brings Guts and Serpico closer together mm-hmm. yeah. in the end. Yeah. And you really feel their, their bond has strengthened and they have such a mutual respect for one another. And it's just really awesome. It's like, yeah, okay, this is, this is the group. Well, you know? it's like they can finally put that part behind them now. Yeah. Now uh-huh. that it's been yeah. brought out and faced. You know, it's a typical yeah. guy shit, right? Yeah, you know, but just, I agree with Let's Gob- just punch and get it over with. <laughs> I agree with Gobbs is because it feels really like it really cleared out the air. In a way in a way that doesn't always happen, but it's really and to the point where when he's fighting the Kundalini, he's like at some point he turns to mm-hmm. Serpico, he's like, you know, get in there. What the fuck you're doing, man? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, you do your part. And so, and, and that's, you know, same way, for example, when they go to the Clifford, uh, he turns to, to Isidro and he says, you know, if you don't follow up, you'll get left behind or something like that. And Isidro's like, okay, that's my cue to, to stop moping and move my ass. And uh, very effective, you know, very, very much like guts. You know, it's like, all right, get to it. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I also, I also agree with that. I'm like five minutes past the part of this being relevant, but we're at the end of the show. So who cares? But in terms of Serpico and his specialty and like what makes him great, you know, just to consider that whenever he did duels, we also mentioned this in the past, you know, for Farnese's sake, it was never to his never his intent wasn't to kill people. It was to disarm them and make them still look like they are the winners. Yeah. But they have to, you know, what's the word? Um, give up uh they have to give the the match up yeah so every in every duel was like that he can't he couldn't have them lose face because that would incur further you know duels yeah so he had to disarm them and make it look like an accident pretty crafty guy to have to do that over and over and over and that that kind of like it's like honing a certain kind of blade in your mind to do that kind of thing so yeah of course it makes a lot of sense that he would be this kind of fighter if he has that kind of crafty mind mm-hmm well, I'll end up on the fact that uh, when Serpico's holding his head because uh, he got slammed in the fucking ground, <laughs> Casca's holding hers as well. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> are we holding our heads? That's really cute. Yeah. If you, I, you know, one of the things I like to do is go back to and just check what Casca's doing. Mm, yeah. Because it's something I think I talked about in the last podcast. Sometimes, you know, people will say, well, you know, Casca, she's, she's been like frozen for, for a while. And it's true, she didn't develop because of her condition, but Muir actually has her do a lot of stuff, (laughs) usually funny stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a little pleasure of mine. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that got more complicated for him over time as the cast grew. And the the question was always, how? what what should the dynamic be? What should this character be doing as the cast continues to grow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think he... He realized himself that uh, it had grown even maybe too much. And yet, you know, we got Isma, and then he was like, well, you know, Isma's cool, so it would be too bad to let her go. So, yeah, it's it's just, uh would have been interesting, again, would have been interesting to see how the cars would have been rearranged after the island in this uh, regard. Well, that's it for the show. We'll be back next month to talk about uh, the rest of Volume 30. I think there's at least eight more episodes still to go, so plenty to cover as we continue on with this project 
Thanks for listening. Thanks. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullnight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puela, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puela has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.